Ready? Go. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Hang on! It's off the charts spectacular. Go, go, go! Tom Cruise has outdone himself. The world's coming after you. Stay out of my way. Prepare for one of the best action movies ever made. This is getting exciting. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network, we are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. Yes, we're the same room. I'm Ryan Abraham with uscfootball.com, so I could smile at David when he was doing that to make him laugh. <laughs> that totally threw me off. Yeah, see? Uh, uscfootball.com is the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and together we make the Podcast of Champions much better when we are in the same Locale. We have a great show today. Sorry we missed last week. I was on vacation in Hawaii. We thought we wanted to get a really good show with our special guest, uh, Brandon Huffman, who's the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. So we're going to get him him on in a second. If you have any questions for us, I think we got a lot of emails today. Pac-12podcast at gmail.com. You could also call or text us at 424-532-0678. The Twitter is at Pac-12podcast. The website Pac12podcast.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, any place you can get a podcast. You can listen to the POC Podcast of Champions. Please subscribe, rate us. We appreciate all that. And our Reddit page is reddit.com slash r slash podcast of champions. Do we have any good reviews, David? We've gotten absolutely no reviews. Um, We had two weeks off. What were you people doing out there? Well, I think that's what it was. We are, I think we are truly the out of sight, out of mind uh, uh, podcast yeah. out there. I do apologize for that. We want to try to do every week. So, we, you know, we missed one, uh, but we're bringing in the very special guest. So I mentioned Brandon Huffman. Follow him on Twitter at Brandon Huffman. He is the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. He's our friend, our pal. David doesn't like to get him on the broadcast for some reason, but we want to get him <laughs> here. Brandon, thanks for coming on. Hey, guys. It is so great to be here with you literally i was so excited that i almost forgot that i was going to be on with you guys tonight that's how giddy i was <laughs> yeah what so what's the story why are you not on the broadcast anymore because I, I think you're good at your job i would i seem like you'd be an asset to that that program you know I, i'm too neutral and objective i think to be on any oh. team site and no i think what it really came down to is that i couldn't hold a candle to dave's just wit and humor and Honestly, it's more fun to just listen to Dave after a podcast <laughs> because his passion bucket overflows when he does it. Yeah. And he's been doing it a long time, you know. So I always enjoy hearing him. Just been doing it been doing it a long time. Been doing it a long time. Well, it's great to hear from you, Huff. It's lovely. Same. Um, same, same, same. I feel and some guys, tension between you're, you guys. You're, <laughs> you're asking about rate. Well, you know, you guys are complaining about rankings and ratings and reviews. They're all overrated anyway. A bunch of people that have never recorded a podcast before evaluating and rating pod, 
Oh wait, no, sorry, that's something else that people complain about <laughs> ratings. Uh, well, wrong memo. Hey, you got. We should plug your podcast, and I always get it wrong. The rest of the best of the West, or the rest, or whatever you know, the rest of the West. Is that right? I told you it's the second best college football podcast on our footprint after the podcast of champions. It uh, is the West of the rest. You can find us on all those a, beautiful places. Is this a football podcast? It's way more football than ours. I mean, Blair and I spend half the time giving beer reviews. Oh. <laughs> West of the rest. Which is important. Champion. Yeah. Well, it's cool. You got you and Blair on a show. Greg does some weird show. I don't know. The Greg, Greg's, you know, what, well, Greg's national. He's like oh. the golden boy of 24 seven. He gets the biggins and power hour. We're just like this little regional thing. Greg gets to talk about all the big stuff. Yeah. You know, we're like, we're like local. He's big time Stephen A. Smith national. So oh. good for Greg. I remember him back when he was a regional guy like us. So. Well, <laughs> we try to support your show uh, by, re- well, by we, I mean me retweeting it on from the Podcast of Champions Twitter account because David doesn't even know where that is. We have a right Twitter now. account? We do have a Twitter but we do appreciate it. we want more west coast shows so it's great that you guys are out there talking west coast recruiting and it's not just the pac-12 like you'll, you know it'll be mountain west stuff they'll get all that yeah and then all the other conferences that pillage the west coast for recruits a lot of acc and sec talk these days so thanks a lot larry <laughs> <laughs> uh well you were up in norcal this past weekend so maybe we'll start there the uh avery strong northern california seven on seven tournament so maybe tell People kind of about, about a little bit and uh, and how it went this week, this uh, past yeah. weekend. Yeah, it was a great tournament. Uh, you know, about three years ago, uh, two good friends of mine, Terrence Leonard, uh, TMP Elite, uh, Nathan Kenyon of Kenyon KT Prep 7-on-7, seven seven, started a tournament in Sacramento, in Northern California. And this was the third year they've done it this particular weekend. And it's called the Avery Strong Northern California 7-on-7 seven seven tournament. And they get all the top teams from Northern California. Several from Central California had been there in the past and were there this year. Uh, and then they just do a 7-on-7 seven seven tournament, give me an opportunity to talk about Avery and, and our foundation. And then they donate all the proceeds back to the foundation. But just gives me an opportunity to share Avery's story this weekend, which is always important to me at any weekend, but particularly this weekend, since this was the anniversary of her passing away in 2016. So got down there, uh, went to see the seven on seven tournament and saw some really good talent there. There's been some great players these last three years, and it's always enjoyable to get down there and to share Avery's story and, you know, kind of have a new group of guys that just think of me as the recruiting guy, they get to hear kind of what motivates me and what really uh, you know, drives me off the field and, and outside of football. So it was a great opportunity for it. And it was kind of a good build up before the big national seven on seven in Las Vegas, or actually in Mesquite, Nevada, next week in the Pylon National. So good tournament won by Malu MLYUFI out of the Bay Area, um, BKT Prep, who was the home team. So, you know, good talent. And then back at it next weekend, seeing like 200 teams in Vegas. Wow. So seven on seven, um, back when I was doing it regularly was starting, it had, it had started to get into like late to mid February. Um, where are we now? Does it start in December of the previous year? <laughs> like, what are we talking here? No, you're, you're pretty much on it. I mean, you're now having tryouts in August so or, or at the end of July for a lot of teams. They'll have a team selected before they even play for their football team that fall. And then by mid-December, You'll have teams that are doing, you know, a training camp or they're doing a media day before you even get to Christmas. And then there's tournaments 
literally the opening weekend of January. It used to be that the pylon event in Vegas was the first one of the year. And a lot of times that was in mid-March. It would be it would coincide with the first weekend of the NCAA tournament, which was awesome because you get to spend the weekend in Vegas, the weekend of the tournament, and you get to watch a little basketball. Now, by the time you get to mid-March, I mean, there's been teams that are they're done with seven on seven. They played eight to ten tournaments. So it is it has grown and expanded in you know so many ways. Now you've got a host of big national events. There used to be one national event. Now you got a bunch of them. You know, Vegas had the battle seven on seven this weekend, and all these teams are sponsored by different shoe companies or apparel companies. So there's just seven on seven pretty much every weekend. And it's you know, it makes their the, the off season really not existent to the point where literally the only time there's no events going on is the month of August because high school football season started, college football season started, there's no camps, there's no seven on. So you get August to kind of recover and get ready for the next 11 months. Well, that's a great time for you to fill in and cover some UCLA football practices, right? Mm-hmm. Do you guys still get to set, go to San Bernardino for that? Is no, that unfortunately. They, they do I, I kind of, well, you know, I, I don't know if it was Stockholm syndrome or what, but I kind of got used to, I kind of enjoyed San Bernardino. That was kind of fun. I, yeah, I would always love listening to your, uh, your comments afterwards. Or we would have a, a review and, you know, there was usually some meltdown that Jim Mora had or somebody else had. And, those were the days. Know, those were those, fun. Those, I'm sure. I mean, nothing spells fun like San Bernardino. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you can find F-U-N somewhere in there. San <laughs> no, no, no. It's not in there. Well, the uh, the main point of having Brandon on is we want to go over the, the classes from the Pac-12 North. I think that's shifted a little bit. The main point now is going to be we want to repair that relationship between David Woods and Bro and Brandon mm-hmm. Huffman. We want to build that bridge back again. <laughs> so that's that's going to be my goal for today. We'll get to the recruiting stuff, too, and we'll kind of work on that the healing process throughout the show, but we have some Pac-12 news, some breaking news, maybe not breaking anymore, but we wanted to get your thoughts on it. I think you talked about it on your show a little, Brandon. I, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, Mel Tucker yeah, leaving for Michigan State. So this is a, you know, middle of the road Pac-12 team, not getting their one year five and seven coach poached by a Blue blood. It's by a middle of the road. Like the ninth best program in the Big Ten. <laughs> right. Uh, doubling his salary to get to $5.4 million. Also doubling his assistant salary. So instead of paying $3 million for his group of assistants, he gets to pay $6 million for his group of assistants. Um, it's a huge... I mean, obviously, they're go, you know, Michigan State's going all in. You could argue... You, I mean, Mel Tucker's had one-year experience as head coach. He does have Michigan State ties. He started his career there and all that stuff, but... I mean, that, some people say it's just like, well, what are you going to do? But is this really an indication that the Pac-12 is circling the drain? Or what, what do you make of all this? I mean, I don't think it's a the, it further cements that the, the Pac-12 is circling the drain. I think, hey, they do a good enough job of doing that on their own. <laughs> I, I think this is one of those cases where the Big Ten realizes, you know, after the SEC, they're the other big group at the table. They have the money. They have the resources. They have the wherewithal and you know what's interesting is there wasn't even a firing but there was a what 14 million dollars something like that uh retirement severance package that d'antonio got so they're paying a lot of money for him to walk away plus they're now paying a lot of money for mel tucker to come and i I think it just shows the difference in in power the big 10 has when a middle of the conference program can pony up that kind of cash i mean that's the kind of stuff you expect from the SEC East teams that 
have zero chance of ever being competitive, but for some reason still spend money in stupid ways. I mean, if you can pay five million for what was it five point eight for a five and seven coach, I mean, why not do it? And I mean, if you're Mel Tucker, why wouldn't you go go do it? You get a six year contract, you're guaranteed all that money. So I don't think it's so much the Pac-12 circling drain. I think it's just the Big Ten's flexing its muscle at the expense of the Pac-12. But I, you know, we were talking about that that very morning. We were recording on our podcast on West of the Rest, that little local podcast we do. Like, listen, Colorado fans, this is going to happen at some point. Sooner or rather than later, Mel Tucker was going to leave. We didn't think it would be this year because he had posted that heartfelt tweet about how he was never going to leave and he was committed to Ralphie and the Buffs and all that. And then he was gone that night. But I, I just think it, it, it's fascinating that, you know, conference schools, and it's not even so much the Pac 12. I mean, you just look at the like Colorado State going and hiring Steve Adazio. The Pac 12 is one of those conferences that it is such a regionalized conference that if you hire outside of really the footprint if you hire outside of the the pac-12 family coaches are looking for any opportunity to get out of that conference and out of that region and get down to where the money can be made and that was the biggest danger when colorado hired mel tucker with very little west coast ties is that the opportunity for a big acc or sec or even a big 10 job if it presented itself he was on his way out so it's going to be fascinating to see what route they go. And if they turn it over to Darren Shiverini full time, if they, you know, make a, a, another hire, it's just, you know, you're, you're on the clock, Colorado. But I, I wonder if this one has a little bit more of a regional presence to it to prevent something like this from happening again. Yeah. I, I mean, I think if the West of the Rest podcast offered to double my salary to 25 bucks a month um, from what <laughs> I'm getting from the podcast of Champions. Whoa, whoa. whoa. I don't know uh, what your advertising expectations are. <laughs> I'd go in a heartbeat, right? Absolutely. I, I would make that jump in a heartbeat. And we're talking about orders of magnitude more than that. Um, I don't blame Mel Tucker. I don't blame anybody in this whole thing for what they did. I mean, I think it's kind of an overpay from Michigan State, but whatever. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Um, I do think it is like what when Ryan and I were talking about this earlier in the year, I said, I don't worry about the budget things until it starts to be literally a coach, a head coach getting poached in a situation where it doesn't make sense. Like Mm -hmm. when Willie Taggart got poached to Florida state, that made sense. Florida native, the whole thing. Mel Tucker to Michigan state does not make as much sense to me as that. And so when I'm looking at this one, this is the the thing that starts to ring some alarms for me Um, because this is truly just wildly overpaying a head coach to pull him. And, Combined with Mike Leach, and I know Mike Leach, he was constantly looking for kind of a way out of Washington State, looking for a place where he could recruit at a little bit of a better level and get better talent. I, I get that. This one feels like real ringing of alarms, um, and I think this is one of the first major signs that that yawning budget divide between all of the other leagues in the Pac-12 is starting to actually have meaningful impact um, in what's going to be results on the field. I wonder, too, you know, if this really makes the rest of the Pac-12 panic because you would think it would just from a pure number standpoint. But being that Colorado is one of the newer schools in the conference and, you know, it's been in the conference for, what, almost 10 years now, but it still feels like they're they're the newbie and they've never really been a quite a fit in the Pac-12 it, like, like, say, Utah has been. You know, I, I almost feel like if it would have been Kyle Whittingham that had left and maybe he was there for a year it would have even signaled more 
uh, of a panic. But I almost feel like the rest of the Pac-12 may look at it as like status quo in the sense like, oh, it's Colorado. I mean, they're not really a Pac-12 school as it is. They're more of a Big 12 school. And, and maybe had it been Whittingham that left for double his salary somewhere else, that would have been a, a bigger core being struck. Because Utah, you still – I don't know. I mean, geographically, Utah does seem to fit, even though that they're – other than Colorado, the furthest east, they still at least feel like a Pac-10 or Pac-12 school. Maybe I'm the only one that says this. I, no offense, Colorado fans, but I think you guys have said the same thing, Colorado fans, for the last 10 years, that you were a big 12 school that's being fit into a conference you never necessarily really wanted to be in, unlike Utah, who wanted to be in the Pac-12. So I, I wonder, too, if that's going to really make the other ADs or presidents panic all that much because they still kind of look down on Colorado as not really one of the guys. Yeah. Um, listening to the national perspective of this, it's almost, you get a feeling like that a lot of the national writers are just almost feeling t- bad for the PAC 12. They're like, this is, this is the way it's going to be. And it's only going to get worse. I was listening to, uh, our friend, Bruce Feldman. He was on actually Colin Cowherd's weekend podcast. Uh, when I was on vacation, listen to that one. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. Uh, Bruce did that right now, the sec and the big 12 and the big 10 are making so much money. The way they look at the Pac-12, the same way that the Pac-12 looks at the Mountain West, like it's just another class of football. Do you do you think that's accurate? And if that's true, that's not a good sign for the conference. I, I think it's accurate, and I think you you know just making it bring it back to the level that I'm most familiar with recruiting. The Pac-12 seems to be recruiting like it's in another class and not in a good class to be. You know, when you're when your top players in your region are being you know poached year in and year out, and especially in these last couple of years, and now you're reaching and taking in guys that, you know, we're Mountain West guys, some are even big sky guys. It, it almost feels like that's, you know, the case in every facet that it is a, in, in another class. It's a, it's a power five conference based on reputation more than more than production. And it's almost like there's the power four. And the Pac-12 and the Mountain West are starting to become a blurred line. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's a good situation, good state of affairs. Speaking of good states of affairs, um, <laughs> UCLA, as we uh, talked about the last time we recorded a show, which was several months ago, um, is doing very poorly from a budget perspective. But they're not the only UC school having some issues. Cal reported a $24 million shortfall last year meaning that the two football-playing UC athletic departments totaled a $43 million budget shortfall last year. Um, I got to figure Cal's is is mostly related still to their, like, horrific stadium financing deal that I'm sure this is basically just interest payments on that, but can't be good. Can't be good, right? I mean, both schools have fired football and basketball coaches in the last couple of years. Buyouts don't pay for themselves, especially when you add ridiculous extra years onto said contracts and then have to pay said buyouts, then have to open the coifers a little bit for substantial head coaching hires. It's almost like that doesn't pay for itself when you're in a state that budgets are always seeming to be cut. It just, uh, I mean, Look at the SEC. When, when they fire coaches, they do it on a grandiose scale, and it never seems to even be a drop in the bucket for them. When the Pac-12 does it, and it's particularly when the UC system does it, it's like, good grief, where are you going to get all that money to pay those coaches to stay away? And, oh, by the way, how are you going to pay the next coach to come only to want to fire him in four years? It, it just doesn't make sense, and yet they, these schools keep doing so. 
it, it, it's really it's fascinating because the arms race in college football seems to be widening at a time where the Pac-12 was finally starting to seemingly get serious and upgrading facilities and upgrading coaching salaries and upgrading assistant coaching salaries. It, it seems like they were doing all the right things off the field to show that they were going to try to compete against the bigger power five programs. And yet the arms race almost is showing that the gap is getting wider and wider. Yeah. Um, we can switch to other news. The uh, Stanford Cardinal has been very active in the transfer portal. Uh, more of a sucking out sound than a <laughs> flushing in sound, I guess. Uh, same thing, I guess, on the UCLA side. But with the uh, losing uh, started starting defensive tackle, Mike Williams, he's going to go to SMU. Uh, what do you make of the whole – because we're going to talk about Stanford a little bit. They recruited really well, class of 2020. But what do you make of all these guys going into the portal for the Cardinal? It's it's fascinating. It makes me wonder a couple of things. A, how many of these guys, and I'm sure I could you know take the time to do the research myself and I'd get an answer, but how many of these guys are, are already gotten their degrees? Are they grad transfers or are they just general, you know, two years of unhappiness, playing time, workload, everything, or are they guys that are graduated? So they got that Stanford degree, but maybe, uh, you know, is there a feeling now that they front-loaded their schedule? Because remember, remember Stanford, never seemed to lose guys early to the NFL draft. And even when like Andrew Luck left early and Toby Gerhardt left early, they left with a year of eligibility, but they were seniors from an academic standpoint. I think Stanford's one of the schools besides like Notre Dame that never does the red shirt until your end of your career. They call you by your academic class. So even when Luck and Gerhardt and guys like that left, they had another year of eligibility on field but they were graduating. And then you started having the Christian McCaffrey's and the Austin Hoopers and the Solomon Thomases. And you started to get this run of Stanford players leaving before they graduated. So then I started to wonder, well, maybe Stanford players are now going in thinking, I want to be out in three years. So I'm going to stack my classes, stack my, my workload. So when I do leave for the NFL in three years, I've got my degree in hand. I went through all this work, all of this pain and suffering, doing the application process. I want to at least walk away with my degree before I go to the NFL. And then guys are realizing the NFL is not coming to call in and they put the time and effort in. Maybe they're not getting into the grad school that they want to at Stanford. Maybe they just want to have two years of having a little more fun in, you know, Dallas or wherever it may be. So I, I'd be interested in seeing if there's a correlation with guys graduating quicker at Stanford and now just looking for something a little more lightening of the load. And, you know, the other part of it is there's some players that were recruited by predecessors that are no longer there you know a lot of the offensive linemen originally recruited by mike bloomgren who's now at rice you know maybe they they felt more of a connection with bloomgren maybe there's you know finally the the final chinks in the armor at stanford are happening but it's definitely been you know a story this offseason i think kj costello probably more than anybody is the one that makes you scratch your head the most because he was pretty emphatically the starting quarterback when healthy and even he was ready to leave yeah, I'm looking at the portal for 24/7 Sports real quick. They have six. I don't know if there are if there's any walk-ons. Sometimes they'll put walk-ons on that, so I apologize. But there's 16 guys listed. 14 of them say are immediately eligible. So 14 of them have graduated already. So that's the the vast majority of these. And I think that that's probably a lot more. It is funny how many walk-ons you get. I mean, we get emails all the time to our to our emails saying, "Hey, I'm at you know such and such D3 school." In you know Connecticut, I want to be put on your guys' transfer portal page because I'm in the NCAA transfer portal, and you know they want to be listed. And you know I'm sure their college coaches are knocking themselves over for that guy who played at University of Hartford 
as a backup punter, but alas, here they are. You know, there are guys that want that other opportunity, not knocking their hustle, but the point being that it, it does seem with those guys being immediately eligible, it could be maybe they weren't admitted into the grad school program they wanted to be at Stanford. Maybe they were, you know, against their peers and you know, those guys were the 4.5 students at an Ivy League school trying to get into that same graduate program. And in a you know, stroke of luck their way, they can now transfer to another school and play right away and work on a master's program that might be a little bit easier for them to get into that school. Yeah. And th- to be fair, three of the guys listed in the portal are coming back. So uh, they've listed Stanford as to transfer and then they're coming back to Stanford. So uh, I think so. There are 16 guys are in there. 13 of them look like or have transferred out or are still in the portal. Yeah, I mean, I would lean more towards it being an absolute grim, terrible disaster for Stanford um, <laughs> and probably a sign of very, very bad things. But I think your theory has merit as well. And I wish to subscribe to your newsletter. Thank you. you know, I used to be on this podcast with this guy a few years ago who used to really have a thing for David Shaw. So I'm wondering, too, if there's a little bit of, uh, maybe, of that involved. <laughs> maybe I'm just like okay. validate. Maybe that person, perhaps, is just validating their previously held opinion with current data. Yeah. And he held on to it, and it's finally playing out precisely as he predicted. That's that's yeah. maybe that person is feeling that way. Brandon, we also had a note about Utah quarterback uh, Jason Shelley, who turned to defensive back. Now he's transferring out. I don't. My guess is David doesn't really care about this that much. Just from some of the notes. yeah, it's weird. It's weird. I don't care about a backup quarterback who played sparingly the last couple of years transferring. But please continue on. I with just this had note. to mention it because David wrote all these funny notes that we can't really read on the podcast. But, but, but I mean, again, I think that that's uh, one of those situations where you know the writing was a little bit more on the wall, and, and I think probably the, the first you know, real indicator of that was when Utah brought in one quarterback transfer last year, they brought in, Oh goodness. His name's escaping me. I should know this kid's name because Uh, he's from Ventura County, the South Carolina guy or no, no, not Bentley, but the kid before him, uh, the kid from, he transferred from Texas. I should know this kid's name. He literally is from the same, uh, Cameron. Oh goodness. The quarterback who transferred from Texas to Utah, and yeah, so he's from Newberry Park. I'd like everyone to note something. Cameron Rising? There you go. Cameron Rising. I knew it was in the book. I would like to note one thing, and this is a historic moment. This was Brandon Huffman not remembering some random kid's name right. from anywhere in the last 25 years. Because Brandon Huffman has encyclopedic knowledge of every recruit who has come through the database in the last 25 years. This is a historic I, moment. I, this is see, being on your guys' show does it to me. It makes me intimidated, and I can't remember, and I can't recall things. And I'm even more disappointed because this kid was literally from Ventura County. Like I should have known yeah. who this was, but alas, I wasn't. Um, yes, Cameron Rising. So you know, there's there's still an indication, and that might have been more to remedy losing Jack Tuttle as quickly as they did a year ago. But then when Bentley comes in, I think it became pretty clear that you know Bentley was the guy that that they wanted, and that was the guy in the direction they were going to go. So you know, Shelley who was admirable when he took over for Tyler Huntley last year when Huntley got hurt against Arizona State. You know, I think it became clear that they didn't have high aspirations for Shelley, so so he leaves. But uh, again, I mean, it's it's always fascinating the quarterback dominoes that fall, and it's always fascinating when guys kind of you know overplay their own hand and they think, well, you know, I started a couple games in the Pac-12. Surely there's going to be a number of schools that are coming after me. And 
a lot of coaches are like, yeah, well, there's a reason you only started a couple of games and not all those games. We'd rather try our hand at a younger guy who we think we can get more value out of long term. So, you know, it's a bold strategy by Shelly. We'll see where he ends up. But, yeah, I, I don't think Utah fans are completely broken hard. I mean, they're probably surprised. But with, with Jake Bentley, I mean, his flat out was an injury and he got replaced after being a three year starter in the SEC. I think there's a lot more confidence and optimism with him. Yeah. Feel more tension between you guys. I got to get this healing process going. You know, I'm just going to keep working on it. I know Dave's he's hard to get along. Day one. He's hard Dave's to get always along been with. My day one. Yeah. No, he's always been my day one. We're day one. <laughs> nice. Um, is that what they still call it? I don't know. We're, I'm not. So that's the thing. Is also I don't really cover recruiting at any real level anymore. And that was really the way I tapped into anything cool anymore because the. So just in life, everyone out there, the best way to maintain like finger on the pulse with everything is follow a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds on Twitter, because that's what you have to do as a recruiting reporter. And so you pick up all these lingo things. It's like, oh, cool. I can I can say this now and I'm cool. Uh, I don't do that anymore. So I don't have that anymore. So I'm mm -hmm. saying stuff that's like six years old. Dude, I have two teenagers that live in my house that are that call me dad. So you would think I would know, but. I ask my kids things and give me that look like dad. Nobody says that. I'm like, well, you were supposed to tell me before I said it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, well, that's all the kind of newsy stuff we had. Uh, we want to get into the recruiting aspect of this. And we uh, broke down, like we said, uh, two weeks ago with Blair, uh, the Pac-12 South. Now we're going to do the Pac-12 North. We'll count uh, from the bottom up as far as the recruiting rankings go for each of these classes. And first up is number 11 in the conference, but number one in your hearts with uh, Nick Rolovich there. Uh, the, we got Washington State Cougars. Oh, you know what? We should probably play this one, too. Washington State Cougars. I think this is more of a meow. Yeah, I guess they're ranked 11th. It should have been yeah. a meow. Yeah. All right. So Washington State, 11th in the Pac-12. In the Pac-12. Not the Pac-12. Just so you know, it's not <laughs> called the Pac-12. Is there a TH? Um, it the may end? soon be the 12th best conference. We don't know, uh, but it is still the Pac-12 as far as we are aware. Uh, they are ranked 56th nationally. Um, they have two enrollees, 21 signed letters, and then a couple of transfers coming in as well. Um, Huff, what do you think of this class? Did they take any sort of hit for the late? um departure of mike leach um and uh what's your main takeaway of this whole thing i mean they did lose a guy Keyshawn smith who after reviewing senior film we made a four star he actually got out of his nli and ended up at miami and enrolled already so that was a loss but on the flip side in the less than one month that nick rolovich was on campus between his hiring and signing day he signed exactly the same amount of in-state players that mike leach did in the seven and a half years leading up to the 2020 <laughs> signing day. Now, not all time, but in the 2020 class, Mike Leach had one in-state signee, Devin Kailani, whereas Nick Rolovich got one in a month. And Alphonse Oywak, we flipped from Arizona. Oywak wisely did not sign with Arizona because at that point, they only had one defensive coach on staff. It was Demetrius Martin who had been recruiting him, but he wasn't sure if Martin was going to be retained. He wasn't sure who the D.C. was, so he didn't sign and bet on himself. Washington State offers him immediately when Rolovich gets tired, signs him. He's a four-star on 24-7 sports. He ends up being the second-highest player in their class that they signed. They also were able to hold on to just about every single other player that signed, including Jaden Delora, who we had as a four-star on 24-7 sports. Interestingly enough, with Delora, he got his first offer ever from Hawaii when Rolovich was recruiting him at 
St. Louis, when Rolovich signed the quarterback that Jaden Delore took over for, Chevy Cordero, he then immediately offered Delore before Delore ever started a game in St. Louis. And St. Louis has a nice little track record of quarterbacks with, with uh, Chevy Cordero, um, who replaced Tua Tonga Bailoa. You know, you had Marcus Mariota in there. You had Jason Gesser, Timmy Chang. So I, I like what Delore could do under Mike Leach, but I really like what he's going to do under Rolovich. So between those two, Joey Hobart, who also was signed by Mike Leach, James McNaughton, a four-star lineman out of the Bay Area, they, they did a really good job of, you know, signing some key guys down the stretch too. The, the name for everybody to get familiar with, and that's going to be hard because it's a little bit difficult to pronounce, it's Fa'ali'i. Fa'amoe, he was a unknown, and he signed on signing day. But we had actually seen him at the Polynesian Bowl. He showed up for practice the second day. He's from American Samoa, about 6'5", 215, 220, just looked like an Adonis. And he visited Washington State the weekend before signing day and signed with them. And, and this is a kid that I think in a few years from now, people will be talking like, how in the world did nobody know about him? Well, it was pretty easy. He was from American Samoa. He wasn't, didn't have just Samoan ties. He was from American Samoa, and Rolovich had been recruiting him when he was at Hawaii. So closes it out with Alfonso Iwak and Faumoe. I think Washington State fans have to be excited with what he can do with a full year and some momentum going into the 2021 class. Now, I know my partner doesn't listen to it, but the West of the Rest podcast, you went into a lot I of I listen to every episode, every minute, several times over. Yeah, okay, whatever. But the, you, got, you talked about Nick Rolovich's impact, and it seems like, I mean, Mike Leach had that dynamic personality or interesting personality, but I, I never got the sense that the, he was like dug into the recruiting stuff as much. And it seems like what Rolovich is doing is like embracing the community. He's like, he's, he's like the biggest PR guy in the world. And he's got that w- kind of a weird personality too, in a different way, but it seems like he gets the recruiting aspect. He's going to try to recruit locally more. It, is he going to raise the level of recruiting for Washington state as a whole uh, for, you know, going forward, do you think? With, without question. And he's not just going to do it nationally. He'll do it more importantly regionally. But I, I think what Washington State fans have been waiting for is to see him doing it inside the, his own state. You know, the first night he's up here really recruiting, he goes to watch JT Tweedmullawal, the number one player in the country in 2021. They have zero chance of him. But he goes to his basketball game to be seen at the Eastside Catholic O'Day game. The two teams that have played for the last couple three A state championships probably the two best private programs in the state of Washington. And he makes sure that he's visibly seen by students at the game, by football players that are at this game, watching the basketball game and just showing that in, you know, insight in, in just desire to go watch guys in state. I talked to two different coaches that are at high schools in the state of Washington, both Washington state alums. And in the first three days that, they, that Nick Rolovich was on the road recruiting, they both told me, in the five-plus years they've been at their school as Wazoo alums, that was the first time they'd seen the head coach from Washington State on their campus. And by the way, both schools have sent players to the Pac-12. They said other than Chris Peterson and Jimmy Lake and Jonathan Smith when they were coordinators, there hadn't been another in-state head coach on their campus in the last five to seven years until Nick Rolovich came. So that right there shows that he knows not every kid in the state is going to get a Washington offer. Even if the majority of the talent in the state's in the western part of the state and they maybe grew up more of a UW fan than a Washington State fan, they are going to still recruit western part of the state. And I think that that right there just kind of gives you an insight into what Rolovich is doing and that he knows when he was at Hawaii, he had to recruit with an arm tied behind his back. If you remember when, when Norm Chow was the head coach, and I know that, you know, 
there was a lot of people that were down on the higher Northern child Hawaii for, for a multitude of reasons. But one thing he did have to deal with is his last year there as the head coach, they didn't have the budget to send any coaches on the road during the spring evaluation period to the mainland at all. So Rolovich is used to being at a place where recruiting is not that easy. Now he's got coaches that have come from Hawaii that were very limited in how much time they could spend on the road to now being like, Hey, we got Pac-12 money. There's, you know, jets that are going to take you around. Maybe not the private jets like in the SEC, but they're going to be able to get out on the road and you're not trying to sell as beautiful as Hawaii is as much as we love to visit Hawaii. A lot of kids have a tendency to not want to go to college there. Now you're recruiting these kids, the Pac-12, and I think it's going to be easier for him to sell Washington state than it was for him to sell Hawaii. All right, uh, next up, we have our number nine team. Oregon State Beavers. All right, Oregon State is ranked ninth in the Pac-12, just uh, three spots ahead of uh, Washington State in the national rankings at 53rd. Uh, They got 20 signed letters and five transfers for a total of 25 guys coming in this cycle. Um What's your take on how Jonathan Smith has recruited that job so far? Um, and what's your take on this class specifically? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things. For one, you know, what David Shaw and Stanford is at the transfer portal, Jonathan Smith and Oregon State is the opposite. What Stanford keeps putting into the transfer portal, Oregon State keeps taking out of the transfer portal. <laughs> so I, I think he's done a really good job of just kind of assessing the needs and bringing in some JUCO transfers that obviously aren't a part of the portal, but getting some more immediate needs filled at the JUCO with positions where he needs to get guys physically ready to play, but then also bringing in transfers, you know, whether it was last year when they brought in Tajon Lindsay, um, you know, this year, and they got Trey Sean Harrison from Florida state to transfer in, or, you know, uh, the, the court, uh, goodness, again, I'm forgetting. I should know this. He's a West coast kid. Who's from Ventura County, the quarterback, uh, Tristan Jebbia came, Tristan Jebbia, there you go. Goodness gracious. I'm, I'm like your old. external hard drive right now. <laughs> you are. See, this is what happens when I'm reunited with you. You were like into my yank. That's who um, I am. I, I, see, I, I think Ryan we're... keeps trying to sow division between us. And oh, the truth no. is that we're connected. You're intimidating Pe- him. He Peaches can't remember. Things, we're reunited. The, reunited, and it feels so Oh, so good. I, I assume he's going to be back so, on the bro podcast now, then. Obviously. So, okay. I have to break up. I'd have to break up with Blair, you know, who's my now. <laughs> but I'm your past. And that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Um, but I think when you look at Oregon State, I think they've done a really good job of kind of ramping up the type of recruits they're going after at Oregon State in terms of, you know, maybe they're, they're never going to win the head to head battles in the Pac 12 regularly. But they've done a good job of recruiting players from key programs in Southern California, key programs in Northern California that are used to winning, that are used to being in a culture of winning. So you get some guys that you can develop that are used to playing at a high level, whether they're at the modern days, the Mission Viejos, the Corona Centennials, the De La Salle's. You go in and you get some transfers that can give you a little bit more of a quicker help. And I think that, you know, this year they were knocking on the door of really turning that corner, coming that close to a bowl game. I like what Jonathan Smith and his staff have been able to do. And they've got some really good guys that have fantastic eyes for talent, really good evaluators. And then they do it. They've been doing a good job of developing them. So I think that, you know, you look at Oregon state's class, it's, it's heavy on, you know, some transfers again, uh, but they do have some, in, uh, some high school guys. They signed Isaiah Newell uh, is a kid that I love out of the Bay area at, at a Las Lomas high school, Walnut Creek. 
a 6'3", 215-pounder, had 15, 20 offers, a number of Pac-12 offers, but really felt a connection with Michael Petrie. And he said one of the biggest things about his connection with Michael Petrie is Isaiah Newell lost his father. He was at a young age. Michael Petrie lost his mother when he was in high school, and they were able to connect like that. So I think they've done a really good job of just finding players that the coaches really can connect with and guys that maybe aren't completely you know mesmerized by the sexiness of a lot of other programs but find that they really can flourish as players at Oregon State and Isaiah Newell is a guy like that I think you know you look at the the Jucos that they were able to bring in Alton Julian was once a Colorado commit uh, more importantly Rajon Wright uh, he went to Oregon State largely because the relationship he had with Oregon State but also Oregon State signed his brother a year before, and that gave those two an opportunity to play together in college. Alton Julian's their cousin. So now all three of those guys get to play with each other. So they did a really good job with relationships, whether it was their own relationship with the players, getting on those guys early, or you know taking advantage of those players' relationship with other players. I think Oregon State fans have to be excited. The, the name that I, I would tell them, like I did with Washington State fans, to really get uh, attached to as a guy that I think could be phenomenal down the road is Sione Lolohe. Out of San Bernardino Aquinas, another kid who was originally from Samoa and then went to Hawaii for school and then transferred out to California for his senior year. You know, I had two Pac-12 schools that didn't get him. Both say that guy's a Sunday player. Wow. Interesting. Uh, what's the buzz been like for Jonathan, Jonathan Smith out there? It, you know, it seemed like people he got people excited in uh, Corvallis again. Is, has there been a lot? I know there was some, a bunch of transfers coming in, but as far as like the high school players go, are they seeing a little bit more juice coming from Oregon State now? Absolutely, and especially with the in-state kids. And I think the 2021 class is going to be one of the better classes the state of Oregon has had for some time, which I think is only going to help them because, you know, Oregon is recruiting so well nationally, and it's really made their approach to recruit nationally, as well as Southern California uh, and really the West. There's not going to be as much room for those guys, so Oregon State can really take advantage of those guys, offered a lot of these players early on in their high school careers so they can get a head start on that recruiting relationship. And I think there's a lot of buzz in the state of Oregon with high school players for the Beavers, and probably more than there's been since you know maybe the the – early part of the Mike Riley second tenure and probably even more so going back to the Dennis Erickson years. All right. Uh, let's move up the rankings a little bit. We're going to go just one spot up uh, number eight. And we have California golden bears. This is actually a big jump up from where Oregon state and Washington state were uh, Cal is eighth in the pac 12, but 38th nationally. So 15 spots ahead of Oregon state ranked just behind him in the conference. Uh, they got a big class, uh, 25 signed letters. Um, they still have – so is Nate Ruch, Rucheria, is he even still potentially? Nate Ruchetta. Oh, yeah. So yeah. He, he's gray-shirting. He will be enrolling in January uh, after the season, and he'll come in as a January enrollee. Uh, but that's you know that shows you kind of where Cal's at, where there's a guy who had an early Cal offer, then they filled up uh, on the defensive side of the ball, but he was willing to, to take the gray shirt. So – you know, Cal recruiting is definitely stepping up. Yeah, they got one of the uh, best prospects in Washington this year in DJ Rogers, the tight end. But uh, so talk to us about this class. Uh, what do you think of the job uh, Justin Wilcox did? I think that they've got a buzz that you haven't seen probably since the Aaron Rodgers, Marshawn Lynch years when it comes to recruiting. You know, they're, they're doing a really good job of recruiting in the state of California. They had a junior day 
the weekend before National Signing Day where they had a number of the top 2021 kids, not just in California, but from up and down the West Coast coming down. So that buzz is carrying over from this class that they signed in 2020, whether it was DJ Rogers going up and also getting Justin Baker out of, out of Washington. And Justin Baker, to me, was the key recruit that kind of showed the weakness of Mike Leach's in-state recruiting. They waited forever to offer him. In the meantime, he got six Pac-12 offers and a Boise State offer. He goes to Cal. So you got those two. You got Andy Alfieri out of uh, out of Oregon, who's heading down there. You They were able to recruit nationally, getting Colin Gamble, uh, getting Jaden Roberts out of Connecticut, Colin Gamble out of Texas. They got a couple players that had ties to the coaching staff. Muelo Iosefa was a commit to uh, Cal for a long time, then almost ended up signing with USC. His brother Jordan Iosefa is at USC, was recruited there by Peter Sermon, who was recruited Muelo to Cal. In fact, I, I, when you know you, you look at him, he's another player that, like I said about Sione Lolohe, there's a couple Pac-12 schools that said Cal may have gotten the steal of the class in Iosefa. Uh, so, you know, they were able to get him. They were able to get another kid who had Pac-12 ties, Isaiah Young, whose brother uh, Kelsey Young played at Stanford. Another brother played at Boise State. Um, and then they just did a really good job of getting players again uh, from, you know, from Hawaii, going out and getting Stanley McKenzie out of Honolulu, out of St. Louis, uh, in addition to ESFA. And when you look at this, this St. Louis high school class, they had players signed with Notre Dame, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and, and a number of Pac-12 schools. And, and McKenzie was easy to be overlooked. And you got three linebackers behind you that are the number one, and number two players in the state for your class and the number one player state. For the following class, it's easy for a defensive tackle to be overlooked. And, and I think Stanley McKenzie is another guy that, that could be a steal. He was fantastic at the Polynesian Bowl. So I really like what Cal did in this class. And, and I think that they've done a really good job of recruiting in the Northwest, which makes sense given how many coaches on that staff had ties to the Northwest. The uh, Cal defense, everyone knows how good they've been. It's been the struggle on the offensive side. But Chase Garbers, once he was healthy, this team played a lot better. It looked like they're trying to get better on the offensive side of the ball. A couple quarterbacks, three running backs, five receivers. Um, just you know, try to load up on some of the skill guys. What do you make? Is that did it feel like this is the direction that Justin Wilcox wanted to go? They needed the they're they're pretty solid on defense, but they needed to somehow get better on offense. Yeah, absolutely. And then you take in, you know, the, the hiring of Bill Musgrave, which I think is, and, and, you know, in fairness to Bo Baldwin, too. And I think we've seen this at a few Pac-12 schools the last few years when you recruit to a certain system and then you have a coaching change and then you bring in a completely different system. You inherit three or four years worth of, of players for the previous system. So he wanted to have, you know, more balance in that office. But Sonny Dykes really left him with an air raid uh, cupboard. I think that you're seeing that transition and now year three, year four in their fourth full recruiting class to get more of the players that make it a more balanced offense. And then you bring in a Bill Musgrave to replace Bo Baldwin, who's now the head coach at Cal Poly. And I think he's really going to be able to have immediate dividends pay off rather than kind of the long cycle that Bo Baldwin had to wait. And there's some key guys at key positions, whether it's a guy like Justin, ba uh, Justin Baker, who's a, you know, a, a playmaker type as a running back, as a slot, as a return guy, uh, whether it's the big player capability at receiver that, um, Jeremiah Hunter brings to the table out of Fresno. DJ Rogers, real uh, real versatile type of tight end. He could be a traditional inline tight end. He could be flexed out. He can be used in the passing game. They really upgraded the skill position. And then their running back class, it, it may not look sexy with Damian Moore and, and with Chris Street. You know, neither were ranked 
particularly high, but you look at what those guys have done in arguably the two toughest leagues in the Western part of the United States, Chris Street at Jay Sarah in the Trinity League, Damian Moore uh, at the, in the Sarah League, um, I'm sorry, in the Mission League at, at Bishop Amont. You look at what those guys have been doing in their career against the best high school programs, and those guys should be able to make a seamless transition. So I think it was clear that the defensive side of the ball is taken care of. Now it's time to get those weapons on offense and really let them start to to contribute and make it a real balanced effort offensively. Yeah, they got. I think they got five athletes too, so there could be some offensive skill guys there too. I don't know where they'll end up playing, but uh, interesting to see what Cal did there. Um, their rival, Brandon. Now this is a big jump up. Now the top three recruiting classes in the Pac-12 all belong to North teams. At number three, we have Stanford Cardinal. Yeah, so Stanford, um, they've—I mean, it was a very good recruiting class for them. They had uh, the twenty-first-ranked class nationally, third in the Pac-12. Um, specifically, reloaded quite a bit on the offensive line with uh, three four-star offensive linemen. Um, obviously, your thoughts on the class generally, but also, do you think they did enough in this recruiting class to make up for losing what was quite a bit of experienced talent to the transfer portal? I think they did. I think they would prefer to not have to play a bunch of true freshman offensive linemen again. So even though they did replenish the depth on the offensive line with players that have gone into the portal, they would prefer to keep these guys off the field, maybe their freshman year, to develop them and let them get to the size and strength that they need them to be. But they have a greater number of bodies. And I think you know what Stanford does so well is they identify and target these guys early on that these are the guys that they're committed to Stanford, whether Stanford goes 12 and 0 or they go four and eight like they did this year. So they really didn't lose any guys to other schools. They were able to flip a few guys. In fact, uh, most notably um, Casey Filkins, who was committed to Cal at one point, the number one player in the state of Oregon. He flipped from Cal to Stanford. Uh, he's very similar to, to Max Borgie as a player who Stanford almost flipped a couple years ago. Uh, but then you, you look at what they did, like you said, on the offensive line with Miles Hinton, uh, Levi Rogers, Connor McLaughlin, you know, three guys that could play tackle, could play guard, uh, really good offensive linemen. And then they were able to go into Dallas and get EJ Smith, the son of Emmett Smith. And, and this is a few years after they got Barry Sanders Jr. And they had Christian McCaffrey. I mean, they've done a really good job of impressing and wowing some NFL guys and it's the development that Ron Gould has shown as the running backs coach historically when he was at Cal, whether, you know, when he, when he was this very successful running backs coach at Cal under Jeff Tedford and now at Stanford. And then, you know, they get players like John Humphreys who absolutely love, I think this is the kind of guy that comes in and he, he may even be better than what Trent Irwin was supposed to be at Stanford. We, we love Trent Irwin coming out of high school. And, and I think John Humphreys is a better athlete than Trent Irwin. And then you throw in you know, a guy like Aiden Hector, who'd been a three-year starter on the state champion team in Washington at Eastside Catholic. You know, probably the nicest, friendliest, yet meanest SOB on the offensive line in Drake Metcalf, who's a pure inside guy. Uh, a guy like Tobin Phillips, a defensive tackle out of Fresno. I mean, they did a really good job. Uh, of getting skill position players, but then getting some offensive linemen and defensive linemen that kind of bring back that that Stanford of just even five years ago where they were really nasty up front and, and something we didn't really see from the Cardinal this last year. You, uh, I, I think this is kind of an atypical Stanford class being as big as it is with the 25 and, you know, having those guys transfer out, maybe that had something to do with it. Not, not you know, it's more typical seeing the breakdown by state eight players from California, but there's a, you know, there's like 12 states represented from Stanford. They got guys from all over the country. 
Is this? Did it feel like a little bit different class, though, as big as it was uh, for David Shaw? It, it did, and I think probably because they locked up so many of these guys early. You know, in years past, we've been used to Stanford flipping a ton of guys late once they got their their academic acceptance notice in. Now it seems like a lot of these guys were already admitted before the summer or before the school year started. So there wasn't the late drama that we've kind of gotten used to with Stanford where, will they flip this kid now that Stanford's recruited him, now that he's filled out the application? Maybe, you know, it used to be they had the big recruiting weekend in January and a number of their players would find out their admission status that weekend. Now guys are finding out in September and August. So this, this class was really front loaded. They had a majority of their commitments already done well before the season was playing out. And that's why it just seems like a different Stanford class and why they were so minimally affected by the season and by the record that they have. Um, but it definitely was a bigger class. I mean, we, we've seen some Stanford classes that aren't huge. And one thing to keep in mind too Stanford hasn't signed a high school quarterback in two years now. The last time they signed a high school quarterback was Tanner McKee in the 2018 class, and then he went and served his LDS mission. So they didn't take a quarterback in 2019, and they didn't recruit another 2020 quarterback because they were recruiting McKee as if he was their 2020 quarterback. Now he's coming in, and it looks like you know Davis Mills is probably going to be the starter just if he stays healthy, which is never a guarantee, but... I think Stanford has put a lot of eggs into the Tanner McKee basket to the point where, you know, their last two years quarterback recruiting was essentially non-existent Ooh. as a result of that. Yeah. All right. Uh, the top. Two, so this class used to be uh, ranked number one, but they were passed. But right now, the number two class in the Pac-12. Washington Huskies. Washington finished ranked uh, 16th nationally, second in the Pac-12. Um, that is three enrollees, 19 signed letters, and that's it. But a uh, very highly ranked class for Washington. Um, did you, I mean, first your thoughts on the class, but also um, did you notice any impact um, from the Chris Peterson changeover to Jimmy Lake? Did that negatively, positively in any way impact this class? And then what did you think about the class overall? You know, it was pretty much status quo. They, every player that was committed to Chris Peterson signed, and they added one commit post-Chris Peterson stepping down, Jacoby Covington, who was actually initially committed to Washington when Chris Peterson was the head coach. He ultimately signed with Washington. So it, it really was just pretty much as is. Uh, there was They didn't lose anybody when Peterson announced. They didn't really gain anybody in addition to Covington. They were in it for a few guys down the stretch. Tanoa Togiai signed with Utah. Uh, Jack Yari who signed with USC. Uh, and then a tight end out of Central California who ultimately decided to go the Dartmouth route rather than be the third tight end. But I mean there didn't seem to be uh, any drop off at all. So we'll really get to see what Washington's made of recruiting wise with Jimmy Lake at the helm in 2021 when the Huskies have three of the top 10 players in the country. Uh, one's already committed in Sam Heward, who's a UW legacy, but then they have the number one player in the country in their backyard in JT Tuimolowal, as well as Emeka Egbuka. So we'll really get to see where Jimmy Lake stands recruiting-wise, if he can keep the majority of those guys, all three of those guys in-state, plus a very deep in-state crop. But I think Washington's class looked exactly the same with the addition of Covington as it did when Chris Peterson was in charge. So there was nothing there that was a real worrisome sign at all. The, uh, you you have a defensive coach coming in. Looks like they're going to change the philosophy a little bit on the offensive side of the ball. Has that impacted recruiting going forward, class of 2021 20, and beyond? 
Not so much, mostly because Sam Heward was going to Washington, whether Steve Sarkeesian came back, whether Tyrone Willingham <laughs> returned, whether it was, you know, Keith Gilbertson or Jim Lambrod. I mean, Sam Heward is the son of, of Damon Heward, the former Husky quarterback and assistant athletic director, the nephew, nephew of Brock Heward, who, you know, succeeded his brother, Damon there. His, his grandfather also played for the Huskies. So, you know, he committed in November of 2018, he was committed to the Huskies, but he was always going to be there. They haven't gotten another commitment on the offensive side of the ball since the hiring of Jimmy Lake or even more specifically the hiring of John Donovan. They did add one defensive commitment in 2021, Zachary Spears, out of Loyola High School in Los Angeles. But, you know, we'll see what kind of momentum. I, I think there may be a little bit of a wait-and-see approach with some key recruits. Uh, they did do a good enough job in this last class of, of recruiting at the receiver position uh, with Jalen McMillan, with Roma Dunze, Sawyer Racanelli, that – with three really good receivers out West that the Huskies are on the short list for in Emeka Edbuka with Troy Franklin, with a junior Alexander or Jabez tonight, they, they should be okay if those guys decide to go elsewhere, but it is going to be fascinating to see how the Huskies recruit offensively with Donovan, who's still somewhat of a relative unknown, especially in this region of the country. And you mentioned uh, Tyrone Willingham. I mean, that's the last, that's the last perfect season we've had in the PAC 12, right back in 2008. That's right. You know, one of the greatest seasons ever. I mean, you have to try hard to go in 12 and Tyron Willingham pulled it off. Chip, Ke Chip Kelly's failed twice. He has. He's been close, but then he has uh, ultimately succeeded. Yeah. Dave was really. No, no I mean, succeeded in winning. Not succeeding I was so in going upset perfect. this year because you knew after the, the first stretch, it was not going anywhere. So, yeah, I was really disappointed in the year this year. I yeah. thought UCLA, the, 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 the chemistry was there to go 0 and 12. Yeah. Just, absolutely just how, how absolutely but but all came together on one magical night in pullman yeah. so, you know what will I, I, always be remembered for a weird game sincerely if that one had gone a different way like if they had lost that one in the normal way you do when you're down 49 17 going 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 un one or whatever the terminology <laughs> would be was on the table yeah how different is college football now? Like Tyron Willingham was ten and three his first year at Notre Dame. Then went five and seven and six and five. Got fired, and he got fired before the bowl game. And Washington goes two and nine, five and seven, four and nine, and they bring him back, and then goes zero and twelve. So like, what? I mean, that 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 wouldn't happen nowadays. No, I mean, when you say you want to see what rock bottom actually is before you fire a coach, <laughs> that is what Washington was able to do. That, that's crazy. Crazy times. Um, I still can't believe, I, I think I was listening to J Wilner's podcast he had on Brock Heward and was talking about the state of the Pac-12 in Washington and just mentioning it, like mentioning like a team like that could go 0-12. It's just baffling that, that that happened like with, you know, 12 years ago or something. Yeah. It, it was hard because I was actually at the game when I, I so th that year was weird because they lost the game. Be, of a missed PAT when Jake Locker, you know, threw the ball in the air to celebrate the, what would have been the tying touch and had they made the PAT. Then they lost by a point. Then Locker gets hurt against a really good and improving Stanford team, which I wouldn't say really good, but they were improving and ends up being lost for the season. And then they, you know, had in one of the worst power five football games in the history of football, the Apple cup against Washington state. They, I mean, Stanford or Washington really try hard to lose a lot of those games and they were very successful at it. Like, you know, it was impressive what, what Willingham has been able to do because nowadays almost everybody schedules one game that you just absolutely 
have to win. And it's almost like you, you, even if you try your hardest to lose every game, you're still going to get one game right. But the 2008 Huskies found a way to get it all wrong. They did. Crazy. Perfection in the Pac-12. We crave that again. We just haven't had it for so long. 12 years since we've had a perfect season. Okay, uh, last team. Well, the last thing we're going to talk about, number one in the rankings, they did. Uh, they were number two, and then in the the uh, February signing day, past Washington, we have Oregon Ducks. Another stellar class for Oregon. Uh, finished twelfth nationally, first in the Pac-12. So this is on the heels of finishing seventh nationally the previous year and thirteenth nationally the year before that. So Oregon uh quickly laying claim to the title of most talented team in the Pac-12. Uh they signed a class of looks like 22 guys plus a transfer Devin Williams. Uh Huff how so I think you've talked about this on the West of the Rest podcast a, a show I listen to religiously. Um how <laughs> Did you much read has, the cliff notes or something because I know you did. How much has Mario Cristobal kind of changed the game recruiting wise in the Pac-12 and uh what are your thoughts on this class specifically? Well from the first question, you know, how much has Mario Cristobal changed? I mean, he's changed it dramatically where the Pac-12 is now realizing they've got to step up their game recruiting wise. They've got to be more aggressive. They've got to be more active. They've got to. It's almost like Arizona State made hires this offseason just from a recruiting standpoint, more so than from an X's and O's standpoint. And I think that that is forcing the rest of the conference to to react. It's not unlike 10 years ago when Chip Kelly was at Oregon. And the conference had to kind of, you know, recalibrate and figure out a way to stop him on the field. Now they're having to figure out a way how to stop Oregon off the field when it comes to recruiting. And and people can mock and scoff at Oregon offering a ton of players. You know, 10 years ago, that's what Steve Sarkeesian was doing at Washington when Oregon was very deliberate with with offers uh, under Chip Kelly. And Chip Kelly was able to really coach and develop. He tries to go that same route when he gets to UCLA and realizes – uh, this is 2019, 2020. Recruiting is so much more than it was 10 years ago. Your X's and O's can be negated very quickly if you're not recruiting. And so what Mario Cristobal has done is he's raised the game recruiting wise. He's been more active and aggressive as a recruiter when, you know, as a head coach, which he learned from obviously being at Alabama, seeing the way Nick Saban closed, seeing the way that Alabama could bring in elite classes year after year when the head coach takes on a more active role in recruiting and then hiring assistants who have that same kind uh, of presence when it comes to recruiting. But then he's backing it up by also winning on the field, winning the Pac-12, winning the Rose Bowl, having a quarterback that potentially could go in the top five. You know, it, it helps when you're getting it done recruiting and on the field and the rest of the Pac-12 better catch up or they're going to get left in the dust. When you look at this class, there are some very, very impressive players here that we're not used to the Pac-12 you know, seeing come unless it was the USC teams of yesteryear. But Oregon goes and gets Justin Flo. They get Noah Sewell. They get probably the best one-two punch at linebacker in the conference in the last 10, 15 years. They get probably the best one-two punch at linebacker out west just since the one-two punch of, of Manti Teo and Vontez Burfik both played in the same class out West and ultimately ended up at different schools, but that's how good the flow Sewell tandem is. And those are two of the players that they got. And you, you look at what they've done in the trenches and obviously Mario Cristobal being an offensive lineman himself has made that a priority. And it's been never more evident than the last two or three years in their recruiting efforts on the offensive line, but then it's also on the skill positions. It's also at linebacker. It's in the secondary where, you know, they lose a Dante Williams, but they've still done a good job recruiting back there with, with Keith Hayward. And 
really have raised their energy level recruiting wise, not just regionally, but really doing it nationally where they're going into Florida, they're going into Georgia, they're going down South and recruiting against the big boys with the SEC ties. And, and I think that that's really where the PAC 12 is probably the most in a vulnerable position is it's, it's one thing if Oregon's taking the top recruits from the West, it's another thing when they're starting to bring in national recruits that were used to the SEC and ACC schools signing in addition to the PAC 12 players, or the West coast players that they're bringing in with uh, three, five stars. I mean, we haven't seen something like that since, you know, like you mentioned when USC was doing it a little concerning though, that this is only the 12th ranked class uh, in the country. Um, I mean, they didn't sign as many four stars as some of the other players, but man, just it looks like a really good class to me, but still doesn't even break the top 10. So is that a bad sign for the Pac-12 that the, you know, a really good class from Oregon isn't even in the top 10 nationally? I mean, you can look at it as a bad sign or you could also look at it as this is what they were doing, you know, coming off the year where they went to the Rose Bowl. So that should be a negative, but you really see the bump in the next class. So if this is what they're doing without even really getting the bump and the benefit of the 2019 season. I mean, remember when they won the Pac-12 signing day was like 10, 11 days later when they run the Rose Bowl, the majority of their class was already signed. So they didn't necessarily have the benefit of really selling the a, a full successful season to the majority of the recruits. They had a lot of these guys already committed. So if this is what they're getting before they've seen the bump, then I think it's more concerning for the rest of the Pac-12. And I think you may see them ultimately log, log into that top 10 spot I also think that you look at it from a number standpoint, there's only 22 players that signed in this class. A lot of these schools that are in the top 10 signed 25, 26 players, maybe have done you know some initial counters and whatnot. And so they were able to rank higher just because they had more you know true numbers. Uh, but I think it, you know if this is what Oregon's getting be- before they receive that bump, then that should be something that Oregon fans should be really giddy about. All right, Brandon Huffman, the Brand- man, the myth. The legend. Yeah. Well, hopefully we, we uh, you know, mended a few fences, repaired some bridges. Look, our fences have never been more mended. <laughs> they're, they're like, they've been just united and tied as one. Yeah. We, we are one fence. Now, what, what if you had uh, David on a, as a guest on the West of the Rest? What, what about, what, what if you did that? I mean, considering he was a mentor to one Blair Angulo, it would be just like, you know, old times. I mean, he, he basically taught Blair everything he knew. And I Blair think doesn't it would know be much, like, obviously. <laughs> Blair, Blair is one of the sharpest people I've ever been around. And I figure that was tied directly to the influence that you rubbed off on him there, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put a pin in that one. But, we'll... <laughs> but Brandon, we do appreciate you uh, coming on. Uh, thanks again for uh, sharing all your insights. Thanks, fellas. Hope to do it again soon. And Dave, so good to hear your voice. Yours too, Ryan, but Dave, you're my day one, my bae, or whatever they call them. I don't even know if that's still a thing, but that's that's you. Yeah, nice. no, Drake says no new friends, but you're an old friend. Yeah. Okay, well, good. Yeah. Very nice. All right, well, that's Brandon Huffman. Follow him on Twitter, at Brandon Huffman. We're going to take a quick break, come back, and answer some of your questions. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. New CBS Monday. NCIS. Here's where we can see them. NCIS and NCIS Hawaii return with all new cases. Double tap to the chest, one to the head. These guys are professionals. All new criminals. Finally, not letting the gut here. Walking to paradise. And all new crimes to be solved. If you're watching this, I've been arrested. What are the charges? Just one. Murder. New NCIS and NCIS Hawaii. Monday, starting at 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. All right, we're back here on the podcast of champions. We let Brandon go deal with the, I think he had to catch a train or something. David. <laughs> Seemed like he was hanging out at a train yard. But yeah. Who knows? I, I picture him with like a stick and a little like, uh, you know, uh, headband with some vittles in it, like uh, over his shoulder. And oh, I don't picture a hobo. I picture he like conducts trains in his off time. Oh, I would do that. Yeah. Did you? Did you ever like? Model trains and stuff growing up? No, my dad was a big model train guy, and I think it's inversely related. It's like a it's like um you know how like each successive generation they're less likely to have twins if they're like from the previous generation, but then their next generation will have twins. Yes. It's like that. If your dad is a big model train guy, you won't be, but any of your progeny maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. I I mean I just liked them. I like I had like one of those Lionel things as a kid that we'd put around the Christmas right. tree. That would be one of those things, like, if you ever got rich, like, let's have a train room, you know? Like, here's my train room or something. Right. My dad was, he, he, he like, was really thinking about spending retirement building model trains. Like, this wow. is a guy with stacks of, like, model railroader magazine. Wow. Like, just going back decades. I, I, I wouldn't, like, I'm not, like, I want to build a train. I just, like, collecting, like, you know, big train things sure. and build a like our thing. I w- I'm not. I don't know if that's what model train. That's I guess that's what they are. It's not like building a model, right? Am I? I don't even know what the shit is. So sorry. So it's like the train itself, but also the stuff around the train, like the little scenery. Crap. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I would like doing that. I don't want to like build the train car itself. Like I'm. Not no, I don't think you're like full on like learning how to like construct a mini diesel engine. Gotcha. Like, I don't think that's what's going on here. <laughs> Here's. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. All right, I don't, that was just I don't know why we're talking about that, but let's. Uh, we have a lot of questions since we took a week off. It's weird. Like last week or two weeks ago, we didn't have that many, even though we had some time off. Now they've just inundated us with questions, so we'll try to get through these probably quicker than we normally would. I doubt we will. David, still, in, we still have to go get some dinner. Yeah, we got a lot to do. Yeah, we got lots to do. All right, so we're gonna start right here with Kane, Ryan. Are you considering leaving California due to the horrible state government? You live in a really cool place, no doubt. But soon, if things keep progressing the way they are, the entire state will be overrun with hobos. (laughs) Gavin Newsom started out small, turning Frisco into a shithole filled with bums. Now he's expanded his operation to the entire state. Get out while you can. Dave, this is more of a statement than a question. Communism is evil and doesn't work. God bless America. Thanks for the email. It's funny you mentioned hobos. I didn't even read. I haven't read this. Usually I read the questions ahead of time. But but you already made a hobo reference. I know, here. which I didn't. Uh, I didn't know. No, I have no plans to leave the state. Now, the AB5 stuff really has kind of messed things up a little bit as far as that. And I think they're going to repeal it or, or 
change it. Uh, I hate that law, which is you can look it up if you want, but it's uh, they try to make all freelancers in the state full time employees and. 95% of the freelancers hate that. So it's uh, it's just one of those things with the, I think we might've talked about already, but no, I don't plan on leaving. Although people talk about it because it does get more expensive. And if it got to the point where I couldn't run my business, then maybe I'd buy a place in Vegas and live there, but that, I'm not, I'm not there yet, Kane. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there was a question in there for me. Uh, uh, Communism is a great idea. Uh, it doesn't really work in practice, but uh, the whole like middle ground thing that most other countries do. That's pretty sweet. You should try it. Um, yeah, I'm not a big communism guy, socialism guy, stuff like that. So, uh, like those are, it's more like idealistic. Like it's but, a really sweet idea. Right. I like the problem the, is you uh, see it in practice and it, it always turns to disaster because well, there's humans running. The it, fundamental you know? issue with communism as it's been developed everywhere is that it's basically only ever happened in states that hadn't yet hit industrialization. Like, it wasn't stable societies that developed communism. It was Soviet Rus Russia coming out of Tsardom. Like, it True. went from absolute, like, feudal monarchy to, yeah, we're going to try this egalitarian thing and see how it works. Or China, which was still in the massive stages of industrialization. These two examples with millions of people dying, well, look at any look at any industrial society, even industrializing to the point of capitalism. I mean, Britain killed millions. Uh, we, you know, did a bunch. So yeah. look, it's it's not good. Nobody likes it. Um, but yeah, we should try the whole like Swedish thing. That looks pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's a much smaller scale. Well, we don't need to get at all this stuff. Okay. Let's uh we got Peter in Vancouver, Washington. Gentlemen, oh, this has a map on it. This is great. I've attached a map which shows which teams did the best at recruiting in each state. Below is a link to the article describing how it was created. It's a link to Banner Society. Uh, based on your previous comments, seeing Arizona State win California shouldn't be a shock this year, although obviously in most years it would be. A surprise is that UCLA does show up, but in the opposite corner of the country. My question is that after seeing Ohio State and Georgia win states in the West, what can be done to keep that from happening? Is there something that the Pac-12 conference can do, or is it just a matter of the individual schools recruiting better or simply playing better? Not that it probably makes any difference, but notice that Oregon does not show up on the map at all. Peter and Vancouver. Um, I mean, you could make an argument for Oregon winning California. With they, they got a couple of five stars out of California, but a ASU did a really good job. There, UCLA won uh, New Hampshire. Is that right? Is that the? Did they yes. get? They probably got one player from New Hampshire or something. Um, I doubt you would get more than one player from New Hampshire. Uh, Ohio State won uh, Arizona, um, and who? Where? Oh, Georgia won Nevada. So you know you don't like seeing that, but um, I don't know. What What do you think, Dave? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a meaningless graphic for the most part. I think it's the best. From, from what the I mean, I'm not reading the whole thing, but the mini subtitle says based on the top rated players signed to each per the 247 composite. So I think it's the single best player from each state who they signed with. I don't think it's that because then Oregon would win California because they got two five stars. So who, who did ASU get out of California? That, they got like a bunch of receivers. I think they had more numbers, um, I believe, than Oregon did. But I mean, right. I, I think two what Justin Flo and uh yeah. So this oh no, wait. The other, the other linebacker wasn't from California, so yeah. there was. But they got they got the best player in California. So this is dopey. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna call this a pretty dopey graphic. Okay. Um, 
nonetheless, um, I, I do think there's a real thing with going on, which is that, um, you know, out of state programs are poaching the West a little bit more out of region programs are poaching the West a little bit more. And I do think it's the latter, which is individual schools need to recruit better and play better. Most importantly, Um, the problem is fundamentally that the California schools have not been holding their own at all with any of this for a while now. And uh, there's only so much Oregon and Washington can do recruiting outside of their immediate footprint. So yeah, USC, UCLA, they need to step it up quite a bit more than they have been. Um, and hey, Cal's uh, holding their own. That's true. Cal is holding their own. We said not budgetary wise, but like you know, otherwise. I mean, thirty eighth in the country is is certainly holding their own for Cal. But as far as you know, they're, yeah, they're playing, they're playing above like where you would think. Well, basically, you have USC, which is a historic top five recruiting power, recruiting like Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that's not great. Um. But. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much of that. I mean, the Pac-12 itself, I mean, you could make a budgetary argument, but I think the needs are much more immediate than that. I think it's simply wins and losses at this point. And if you can figure that out, and maybe there's an interrelated point there, but fundamentally it's the individual schools performing better. All right. This one we probably should have used for our interviews, I guess, reading the subject, but you're you're up next. But we don't do that. Um, All right, so this is... uh, from Will from NYC. <laughs> Question for the uh, 247 recruiting analyst. Uh, hi, guys. Would like to hear from you, two and any of the other recruiting analysts you bring on. One, what specifically does Oregon do differently than other schools in the Pac-12 when it comes to recruiting? And two, what are the biggest challenges in recruiting if you look at how schools recruited 10 years ago versus today? Keep up the fine work. Hey, Will, so you must not, you must be new to the show calling it fine work, but we appreciate you writing in. Uh my guy Shotgun, I don't know if we talked about it on the show, uh, Shotgun also writes for the LA Times, and he did a story that Mario Cristobal wouldn't do an interview with him for, which was just kind of glow, you know, glowing review of their recruiting stuff. I mean, it's their relentless staff. They are, you know, I don't know that they lost Dante Williams uh, to USC, but they still got a bunch of great recruiters. And I think when USC was good, everyone on the staff was like a 24-hour-a-day recruiter, and that's what you're always doing. And that's what they do, and they're selling their uh, their brand. They're you know you accentuate accentuate all the positives, and they would be able to do that, especially in California, and get some of the best players uh, to go to Oregon. So I think they do that better than than anyone. And I'd say changes wise, uh, I mean, just there's full on staffs to support recruiting now, as opposed to just the coaches going out there and and doing that. You can't just have you and your 10 assistant coaches recruiting, you have to have a, a support staff helping you and social media stuff and edits. I mean, if, if you, you take a visit somewhere, you got pictures of yourself holding the Heisman trophy and a Jersey and all that. Like it's very, it's just different now. So you need that support around your coaches to be able to keep up with what the other schools do. I think that's right. I've got nothing to add. Moving right. on. Uh, thanks Will for that. And sorry, we didn't ask Brandon, but I think he would probably would have said the same thing. Uh, this one is from Jonathan. College football teams with the most recruiting production in 2020. Uh-oh. Uh, oh, so this is not something we're supposed to read on the air. Uh, he says, would be cool if we cover this on the show. So this is an ESPN So you're article. literally going to read it on air. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess we'll just skip that. But should we should we put a pin in that and look at that or no? We're probably not coming back. Yeah, yet. no, it's it's everyone should check it out. It's um, Bill Connolly started his offseason preview stuff um, and he began with the most returning production, um, which is basically like 
looking at the total tackles, looking at the total, you know, yards on offense, total tackles and, and, you know, accumulated stats on each side of the ball, who's returning the most production um, from last year. Um, one big one is that USC is returning a lot on offense and defense. Yeah. Uh, Cal returns a ton on offense, so you can reasonably expect them to finally break out of the uh, the the doldrums of offense that they've been in. Um, and Utah returns like fundamentally no one from last year. So uh, there's a few interesting things there, um, and uh, we'll probably reference it when we're doing our offseason previews. Okay, yeah, that's a good. I mean, good uh, article to share there. Sorry about. Be starting to read that, but the next one again, something I think we were supposed to ask uh, our guest Brandon. But recruiting questions. <laughs> hey Ryan and Dave, I was going to put this question on Reddit, but I wanted to I wanted to sure uh, make sure that it actually gets read because it's mostly aimed at your guest this week. <laughs> Sorry, well, Ricky. Good. Uh, he's he gone. How uh, do you think teams did at addressing personnel losses and managing their rosters in the Pac-12 this year? I'm an Oregon fan, so I'm heavily biased. Uh, I am. Yeah, heavily biased. But I think Oregon did a good job of both getting high-level players but also getting them at positions of need. I think I mean, Brandon did a pretty good job. Oh, yeah. Brandon and Blair both yeah, addressed that where, yeah. you know, where uh, Oregon State fills some in with the transfers and things like that. Um, he said, if you remove the emphasis on the straight uh, average rankings that ends up in the composite scores, how would the teams get reordered if you took into account uh, filling positions of need of the current state of the roster and which teams might move up or down based on taking that into account. That sounds like an analytics nightmare. Like that's, <laughs> that's a, like a, you could write your thesis on that if you're doing so. I mean, well, and in theory, I mean, unless it's a really, really baffling staff that doesn't do any planning ahead and doesn't have any idea what its roster needs are going to be even like two years down the road. Like, I don't know a school that might, for example, take like 12 linebackers in a particular class um, <laughs> just because they're like, Oh man, I, we got a bunch of ro open roster spots. Let's fill them all right now. Um, you got to figure they're doing that. Yeah. So the rankings themselves, I don't know, essentially compensate for that um, because you still want the highest rated. I mean, look, the rankings are good. You still want the highest rated players at these each individual positions. Yeah. So uh, I, I think it kind of does that already. I don't think the rankings would be all that different. Yeah. And I agree with you there. And there's except for schools like UCLA, which I'm talking about here, <laughs> which is that they they very, very, very poorly mismanage their roster every single cycle to the point where they are literally only reacting to the immediate needs every single year and not doing any planning ahead. Sorry. Nice. Anyway. That's okay. But and there's and we obviously know the USC and UCLA situations uh better. And there's examples of this that might stretch over years where USC brought in six offensive linemen, but none of them were really ranked, you know, that high. Um but mostly because they struck out on the big names that they were on their list that they didn't really have plan B guys for the last two cycles. So they had some four and five star guys that they went after missed on them. And then they kind of had to fill in with a bunch of plan G plan B guys in this cycle. So I think you see that a lot. Um, he said, if you don't have any questions this week and want some more, how important are early enrollees in trans uh, translating from the recruiting process to production from day one, I think it makes a big difference. The offensive linemen, it helps them a ton. Quarterbacks, it helps them a ton. Um, I mean, if you can get in there that early, it's not just you get 15 spring practices. You're there for that whole offseason of the summer, you know, where the other guys come in later. I mean, it's a big deal when you get an early enrollee. Yeah, and coaches can develop, like, their soft factors, too. Coaches can develop uh, biases for you. 
Yeah. Um, you know, the guy who comes in early, they're, they're under the coach's eye. And if they're one of those work hard types, then they'll get maybe a little bit of a bump up. Yeah. And there's other questions about what each team, like an ideal, we're not, we're not going to, like, there'd be stuff we don't even know about that one. We'd have to ask. Yeah. We're way coach. too stupid for that question. Yeah. Sorry. Even for our, the only teams we cover. All right. Thanks again to Go Ducks, Ricky in Seattle. All right, this is from Holy. Chris from Seoul. It's a long, Whoa. long one. So let's start. Uh, is the narrative around talent getting a little stale? Uh, last pod was a bit light on readers' questions. Therefore, I type. <laughs> this wasn't an invitation to then write. <laughs> You've got like 1,500 words in this email. Oh, my God. All right, here we go. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stretch. Hang on. Okay. Uh, listening to the weekly, he spells weekly W E A K L Y, who's basically he's calling our pods week. Listening to the weekly pods this year, it struck me the resemblance both of you have to the coaches you cover. Uh, Ryan is so likable, a truly decent guy. Can't remember much of what he has said or done, even on random <laughs> guesses. Comes out sub 500. See weekly picks. Need I go on? Ryan is a real steady eight and five Clay Helton kind of guy. <laughs> Uh, Dave cultivates an intellectual image, survives on past innovation he now rejects, abandoned the scene of his greatest achievements for a new venue, albeit L.A. for Hotlanta is maybe smarter than Eugene for L.A., puts out as much effort as the average ectothermic animal, better known as a UCLA recruiter, need I go on. The past two seasons, Dave has shown a solid 4-8 worldview on non-football topics. Uh, Poor jokes aside, I love you guys. Keep working on it. Um, all right. As a longtime listener, I can barely count how many times it has been said that USC has tons of talent more than anyone in the Pac-12. Same narrative from almost anyone professionally or semi-professionally covering the Pac-12. Some related questions. One, is the athletic re-ranking of recruiting classes a more accurate tally of applied talent than the original signing day rankings? Um, do you have this re-rank? Have you I, seen it? I haven't seen it, no. I don't know. I would say... Um, the fundamental problem I have with any like retrospective look at rankings is that it's fundamentally interrelated to the player development, the strength and conditioning, all of the things that you would categorize under coaching that goes into a program. Um, so if you're looking at like retrospectively 10 years from now, was this guy overrated based on his production in college? Well, was he overrated at the time that he was ranked is yeah. more the important thing. And you don't have to look too far beyond, well, look at when a coaching change happens, and if it's a good coaching change, suddenly these guys who looked overrated as freshmen, sophomores, or juniors are blowing up as seniors or juniors or whatever it is. Um, that's There's a real interrelated thing going on here, and I think people too often get into this mindset that it's all the players somehow you know who turn this thing around or whatever when it's Oftentimes, um, the development that's happening, the coaching that's happening. So I, I'm sure it's a good re-ranking. The Athletic does a good job. But um, I, I, I have a general issue with things like that. All right. And then uh, two, are the NFL Combine invite listings a better snapshot of talent as it can be applied on the football field than the Pac-12 all-conference listings? I, I would say no. I mean, po the all-conference listings are more about production. The Combine invites are about potential, you know? So they're, they're look just like recruiting. Like you're looking at, I want that guy who's like this guy that only caught five passes in his career, but he's six, five and runs like a deer. They're like, I can do something with that. So I, to me, the combine stuff, that's more about the potential than the all conference rankings. I, I think they're flawed in different ways. Um, I think the combine stuff, you can fall prey to group think 
um, with who ends up getting picked there. There'll be a lot of non-combine invitees who go on to have long NFL careers because they were overlooked for whatever reason. Um, some of those guys will have ended up being like all conference players, but they're maybe a little undersized or a little bit slow or whatever. Um, but the all conference picks can be weird because if I'm remembering correctly, the all conference teams are picked by the coaches and by the coaches, we mean the SIDs. Um, and so it can be a lot of just name recognition stuff, especially when you get into like the linemen where it's just, I don't know, whoever won lineman of the week right. three times gets to be the tackle yes, this year. Exactly. Um, so I, I don't, I think both of them are flawed. I think the combine, um, probably does a better job of like sussing the whole thing out but i think it's you're 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 looking at two different things to ryan's point yeah. you get you have like a middle linebacker that isn't gonna you know he's like a five eleven and a half you know white guy that's just not very fast and gets 125 tackles because he's like you know that's the kind of guy he is he's not going to go to the combine but he had 125 tackles for your college football team in the pac-12 like he's still produced you know but he would mm -hmm. never get invited to the combine all right, and then three, if you take the last three years, 2018 to 2020, who leads the Pac-12 rankings for total NFL Combine invites, USC at or near the top? No idea. Uh, I think so. He's saying that what, you know, I think he's telling you that USC shouldn't be considered the most talented team. The thing I look at is the composite talent rankings that 24-7 Sports does. So say you had like the top recruiting class, but half of them transfer out. What the composite, uh, you know, the talent composite does is, only the guys that are left on your team, and they use those rankings. So if you had three five-star guys and they're all transferred out, those guys don't count for your roster anymore. For the last two years, USC still had the number four roster in the country as far as four and five-star players and all that. So um, I'm curious to see what it will be for 2020. Maybe Oregon passes USC, but still with the players on their roster, I mean, they still had more five-star guys and all that stuff than anybody. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, th this is where it gets a little dopey for me because you're basically it, it acts as forgiveness for coaches if you say all these guys were overrated. Um, which look, we're joking about Clay Helton being a bad coach because he's a bad coach. Um, if all these you know all these five star and high four star guys had played for, um, gosh, say Chris Peterson at USC instead of Clay Helton the last four years they probably would have had more combine invites because they would have been developed better. They would have been playing on better teams. They would have gotten noticed more. There would have been this feedback loop in a positive way instead of this negative feedback loop where guys are playing on bad teams. They're not getting developed as well. They're maybe quitting. <laughs> they're, they're doing, you know, they're doing other things to pass their time because they're not in a serious program. Um, Washington has a serious program. They develop really well. Utah has a serious program. They develop really well. Um, it's uh, isolating this as like a talent argument, I think is missing the point, which is that you'll find if you look at this re-ranking, which it's no point in reading this right now, but no, there's too the, many the there. better coaches are generally at the top end of this thing. And the worst coaches are generally at the bottom end. The yeah. ones that have had coaching changes, the ones that have had real issues are at the bottom end of this. And the ones that have not have had stability, have had good coaching are at the top end. It's not rocket science to say that this is mostly related. Um, you know, obviously part of it is talent. USC is still number five on this list, but it's mostly related to coaching and coaching stability. Yeah. Um, thanks, Chris. I think we can. Yeah, let's move on. That's, yeah, we're going to move on from that. Uh, Chris and Soul, uh, Dave and Brandon and you too, Ryan. Oh, so maybe we should have had 
Yeah, we're doing really we're doing really well. Yeah. What I was I was on vacation. Maybe you could have read the questions ahead of time. Uh, maybe I maybe I should have done something. Yeah. Uh, I know Chip is still the head coach at UCLA for now, but if he were to be relieved of his duties, do you think Brian Harson from Boise State would be a great replacement? He's done the most with average players since exactly what Chip would be leaving the next head coach. And also, if you were the next coach, would you retain anyone who's currently on this staff? Thanks. He says, P.S. Dave, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go leave a five-star review if you help UCLA land a five-star recruit. Uh, Brian, Brian Harson would not be my first pick, um, and I don't know a whole lot about him, but I look for massively outperforming or outperforming generally at your current job as like a good test for whether or not you should hire a coach. And he's been fine at Boise State, but Boise State's been an elite program or an elite mid-major program or whatever you want to call it for years and years and years and years now, predating Harson's time there. And he's been very good there, but he's not been better than Chris Peterson was there. Um, and that job itself is one of the premier, you know, group of five programs in the country. So you got to look at it in context. Um, him being 12 and two at Boise State last year is good. Um, but is it so much better that you can say he's an elite coach? I just don't know. And there's been a track record of guys coming out of Boise, um, aside from Peterson, and not actually turning out to be that good. Um, so I'd be a little bit leery of a guy like Harson. Um, I would look, and I don't have a name offhand, but I would be looking at coaches who have really elevated a program or really, you know, kind of brought things, uh, turned things around from a previous coach. And I, I don't see that from Harson, and I haven't seen him take it to an elite level. And obviously there was a limited trajectory for, for Boise state to continue to go up from where it was, but still, um, you know, he wouldn't be my first pick. Rick Neuheisel did a great job in the AAF. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could go, you know, kind of like J-Rob too. Go, go <laughs> Rick, Ricky New too. That could be fun. I think I don't, we didn't uh, plan how this was going to work out, but this is working out great for me. You get to read Hitler Day. <sighs> Ed has got a chart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, an unpronounceable word is a subject line. So let's see what that one is. Cause it looks like it's, I don't know. Semastahiti. Some sort of Sanskrit, maybe. Let's see. All right. Hang on. Hang on. Okay. Maybe. Sorry. Sorry. Just hang on. All right. So the Samastitihi, mm. which it seems like that's a yoga pose, the mountain pose. Um, oh, it's so a yoga pose. Tadasana. Um, tadasana is the more common word for it. Oh, that, I've done that one. I've not done this. Right. It's the mountain or pose. Yeah. Um, Okay. Every Pac-12 school has now posted their 2020 roster complete with the new signing class plus transfers and returning missionaries on their official website, with the exception of Arizona and USC, for reasons I'm sure I can't imagine. Fortunately, I was able to complete my charts using their official Twitter accounts and learn at which position each school plans on playing their incoming recruits. I was struck by how many class imbalances there were, even within classes that were overall well-ranked. Below is a chart with each school's biggest positional deviation from the league average in both directions. I kind of like this, actually. Like, this oh, is it's, kinda... it's actually a wonderful chart. So the for the other emailer that was like, hey, what are your needs? Like, this is more just about what the norm is. So, you know, not every team needs 10 linebackers, for example. So UCLA did so that, you know, that's why there's going to be a little discrepancy there. Yeah. 
One, the biggest disparity was number 32 UCLA, who took 10 linebackers, but only two linemen, both offensive. You boys mentioned this jokingly last week with Blair Angelo, but I did, but didn't get into the reasons why. What's going on there? Angelo? I don't know, man. (laughs) (laughs) You called your protege by the wrong name. Angulo? Whatever, dude. (laughs) Sorry, Blair. (laughs) What's going on there? Are many of those linebackers? Are many of those linebackers are going? Wow. Hold on. Hithliday has a typo here. No way. Are many of those linebackers are going ah. to be reclassified as defensive ends? Wow. This might be a first. Yeah. Wow. He must not have done well as SATs. Whew. Boy, Hithliday. All right. Are many of those linebackers going to be reclassified as defensive ends? To your knowledge, are there any other positions or schools with misleading numbers in that way? Uh, yeah. So some of those guys will be defensive ends. Um I can pull it up right now. There's a couple of them who we think will be. Um, I think J-Max Jacobson is one. Um, so, yeah, you can count some of those guys as just kind of swing. I mean, it's a it's a 3-4, so you can count some of it as, as guys who are going to be kind of playing a pass rush position. But it is between inside linebacker, outside linebacker, and essentially rushing defensive end, it's like 10 to 12 guys um, who are going to be doing that. And... To your chart's point, zero defensive tackles. Yeah. Um, and that's a big worry um, for UCLA because they are still technically running a 3-4. Um, and they, I mean, with Antonio Mafi, they did prioritize a very big nose tackle. Um, so not landing any true defensive tackles in this class was a big warning sign. And uh, so many linebackers to just replace basically an entire um, graduating class was... Um, dopey roster management that they could have prepared for by you know balancing guys over the course of several classes uh two a lot of oh and any other positions or schools with misleading numbers in that way i i'm sure i have no idea but do you have any idea um i don't yeah i wouldn't know about that like for we already thought like stanford had seven offensive linemen but that's kind of stanfordy so that's okay um usc had six but mostly because of previous misses so that might be stanford's case as well Right. Um, two, a lot of attention was given to number 55 USC only filling 13 of their 16 available spots and whiffing on the elite guys who might fill those last three. But I'd like to know why they only had 16 spots in the first place. Is it really the case that the staff is so in love with every returning player from a roster that went 13 and 12 in the last two years that they refused to process out up to nine more to take a replacement value guy? Uh, it's no, still sanctions, right? Yeah, there's still, <laughs> still sanctions going on. Uh I thought there'd be some more transfer portal guys, and there really hasn't. There hasn't been a ton. Uh, there could be a little bit more attrition. I think it's also that you know they had a class the at the class of 2016. I think it was a bunch of guys transferred out and uh, dropped out or whatever it was. So they didn't have a whole lot of seniors. That's mostly why. But they could have if they were. They just weren't going to be able to recruit at a high level. So there wasn't really any reason to make more room. So if they that don't you know. They were going to try to sign more than that. I think 17 or 18 was actually the original goal. So they they fell far short of that. Right. Three, between the 2020 classes and your knowledge of Pac-12 returning rosters, do you boys anticipate any donut holes in coming years like Washington's inside linebacker situation? Uh, on the opposite effect, positions that are so overloaded, that there's going to be a transfer portal bonanza in the future. I have no idea. Yeah, that's just that you get. I mean, you have to have really intimate knowledge of every every school. And that's just not. No, no, no. Hithliday, you probably almost certainly have a better idea than yeah. Just your chart alone like helps so much. So it's really interesting. Uh, maybe we could add this to the Reddit page. You could add it because 
You could. I could. We could do that in now. In theory, well, I we could. We could actually do that, yeah. I could. That's why we have the Reddit page. You're right. I could. But it, it, he goes over the most below average numbers and then the most above average numbers. And uh, so, like, UCLA didn't have any defensive linemen. And most teams have 3.42 defensive linemen. And uh, UCLA had 10 linebackers. And, you know, that's 6.67 <laughs> above what you normally <laughs> – so normally you would have three and a third linebackers and UCLA signed six and two thirds more uh, than that. So, you know, Washington did any defensive linemen, um, you know, Utah got eight defensive linemen. So that's, you know, five, four and a half more defensive linemen than normal, but that's Utah. Like I, I'm not going to, you know, that makes sense. Some of the other, there's not like a whole bunch of bigger numbers there, but, uh, and the bigger numbers are all in the above average than the below average, but that that's because you got a bunch of zeros. Like, Oregon State didn't get any specialists. Like, okay, big deal. Um, you know, USC didn't get any defensive backs. Well, they only signed 13 guys. But that, you know, typically you get four, a little over four defensive backs, and USC didn't get any. But they had a whole bunch of young defensive backs from last year. So some of it is just what did they do in the year before? You'd have to break down each individual class and then like previous classes and where they stand and if guys transferred out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, all right, should we move on? We got to, we'll try to go a little faster because it's getting late and. You're probably hungry and I'm tired, tired. Okay. <laughs> we'll go fast. Uh, this is from Kevin class rankings. Uh, so what factors go into the calculus of ranking recruiting classes? Can't be just a matter of adding up the star ratings. Can it? Um, no, there's a whole formula there. You can, you can look at it on our website and see what it is, but yeah, that'll be way better than us explaining. Yeah. It. Numbers have a lot to do with it. So if you sign a 15 person class, and someone else signs a 25-person class, if your 15-person class has like a little bit better star ranking, the 25-person class will still be ranked higher than it unless it's like all five stars, things like that. So Quantity it has a quality all its own. Yeah. Uh, and then speaking of star ratings, how many Raiders are there anyway? How possibly can all these high schoolers get watched, then rated, then rewatched, and re-rated? Um, so guys like David and I don't get involved in the rankings and the ratings, but you know the Blairs and, and Brandons and, and uh, Biggins and... Uh, you know, Barton Simmons and there's guys, you know, regional guys and national guys, and they have these powwows and meetings and they go over it and there's re-rankings all the time. They see these guys in high school. They see, you know, at high school games, they see them at all the seven on seven tournaments, uh, all the all-star games. So they, they get to see these guys a lot. And we have, you know, guys in every region in the country. So I think they do a pretty good job of, I mean, they know these players. They do a provably good job uh, based on, you know, later, you know, college play and then NFL draft and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I think largely it's the regional guys on the lower rated guys. They give a strong opinion on the higher rated guys in their regions. And then the higher rated guys, I think it's much more of the, you know, they all have a pretty strong, you know, look at those guys. But I think at the lower rated levels, I think it's often the regional guy who's yeah. making a lot of the calls. And then you like a guy like Brandon comes on today and he tells you about this player Washington state got from, you know, Samoa, I think it was Samoa yeah. that wasn't going to be ranked all that high, but someone that he might've stood on the chair for like, dude, I saw him at the Polynesian bowl. He was yep. great. Maybe it bumps him up to a three-star, but if he lived in San Bernardino, he'd be like a four-star guy. So he, th then the regional guys can tell you like, I know he's not a four-star, but he's a four-star and like, you know, so that, and, I think and Brandon, I mean, to his credit, knows every single recruit in the country. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, he knows the name of every high school player in the entire West region. It's it's really uncanny. Yeah, and then the last one, does anyone try to figure out how much a class answers the position needs of a team? I Hopefully mean, the team does. Right. That's more, it's 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 really hard to be 
subjective or things like that. But you know, you can do it. It would have to be like individual analysis, like what you no, feel. No, you can, you can only do it based off the in, like. You, it gets way way too subjective at that point. You can grade a player based or a recruit or whatever based on measurable factors as well as you know you know opinions about upside but opinions based on you know years of observation right um but once you get into like are they going to transition their defense to a 4-3 and if so does this do these needs fit that and like coaching changes like who knows what nick rolovich is going to try to do at washington state right uh only nick rolovich right now um, so it's so hard to do that. So you can only base it off of the individual players, how highly rated they are. And hopefully that staff is recruiting the highest rated players at the positions they need the most. Yeah. If it's like UCLA, what do you say? Like, oh, they needed linebackers. They got 10 linebackers. That's a super win. Or they really screwed up by not getting linebackers the last yeah, couple of years. That's, that's why you have to grade it based off the individual players. And yeah, we can look at it and say, well, that was a highly rated class for UCLA or relative compared to the chip kelly era but it was a stupid class um where it displayed all of their roster management issues from the last three years yeah um i think we got alex next all right this is alex from pasadena are we doomed i mean probably if you got to ask the question you're probably doomed (laughs) uh first mike leach now mel tucker are we doomed as pac-12 fans seriously convince me on why i should still believe in the pac-12 as a football power five i'm going to cry myself to sleep now even though it's only 8 a.m uh, no, I will not convince you on that. Uh, the Pac-12 is not doing well. This is bad. Uh, this is worse than, I think, results on the field the last couple of years. Uh, losing, not even Leach so much. The Tucker one, is a that's a real concern for me. Yeah. Um, when you start to lose head coaches, you could explain away the Taggart one. You can even explain away the Leach one to an extent. Um, he got a little stale at Washington State. Maybe he just wanted to see something different. He really tried to get the Tennessee job a few years ago um now he got the job he he got the job um (laughs) and now gets the mississippi state job he gets recruited a little bit better level you can kind of say okay that's fine tucker to michigan state does not make a ton of sense to me that's the one where it seems like it was pure dollars and cents he got way overpaid they had the ability to overpay him without hurting their budget situation too much that's a worrying sign for the pac-12 uh it definitely is and you know it's interesting for me to hear Dave, say that because when I would talk about, well, it's like a $20 million gap between each school or $25 million, and Dave's like, ah, what does that really matter? But now you're kind of seeing it in practice, well, right? This is, but this is what I said. Once it starts to get to the point where literally head coaches are getting pulled by other s- conferences, yeah. that's the point where it's a meaningful difference. And I think it it speaks to the need for the Pac-12. They've often done this with recruiting where you need to make sure you're assessing fit and whether a guy actually makes sense to pull out of another footprint into the region. You need to do that with coaches now, I think. Um, You need to make sure that they are a regional fit. Um, And I think Tucker maybe wasn't. Um, And maybe that's the fundamental issue there is that he was not married to being a West Coast guy. Um, Now, I think you got to look at, you know, when you're assessing who to hire, pick guys who might make more sense as a regional fit guys who are West coast, who've had West coast ties, um, who've spent a lot of time here, who have families out here that it's a worrying thing that you start to have to consider that. But I think that has to be now part of the head coach calculus for uh, PAC 12 schools. Yeah. And then you, you limit your, your pool of candidates at that point because yeah. And I think that's a, that's a definitely a problem on the horizon and now immediate. 
you got to give Rick George a lot of credit for for finding a guy like Mel Tucker. And I mean, he did only some guy who came in and, and just went five and seven. Beautiful. Yeah. And I, honestly, he, we thought he was doing a great job, and uh, we we were we had high hopes um, going forward. Yeah. Um, so it is a blow, and uh, hopefully, hopefully Colorado can get this figured out pretty quick here. Yeah. Uh, this one is they were ferocious. Let's talk about it. So from uh, this is from Jake. Says hello, Ryan and Dave. I heard someone use the word portmanteau. 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 Isn't that like a trunk or something, or is it like no, like a clothes thing? What is it? a portmanteau? He's going to explain it in just a second. Oh, okay, uh, today to describe a new word they just made up. I was not familiar with that word meaning anything other than a place to hang your coat. See, it is something like that's a clothes thing. Is it? Yeah, but apparently portmanteau also means a huh. Little- a linguistic blend of words in which parts of multiple words or their phoneme sounds are combined into a new word. That's so weird. That's even the first definition. Yours is the first definition on like dictionary. I, I thought it was, it's like a French thing, right? And I thought, look at you. I, but that was a long time I'm ago. blown away. But okay. So, but this is actually, so what he's using it as, so if you make up a word basically. Yeah. All right. Uh, I kind of like that. My first thought, my first thought after reading that definition was, "Hey, they were ferocious." Is a portmanteau? Is that how you say it? it's a portmanteau? Yeah, okay. he's spelling it wrong. It's not. There's no e in there. Okay. Uh, somewhere in Oregon, Hifliday, <laughs> Hifliday, is, <laughs> he's got an f in there. Is probably rolling his eyes and saying, "Well, duh." Anyway, that's all I have for you. But it should be enough to clear the very low hurdle for off-season discussion topics, dude. We we talk about anything. Uh, all the best to uh, to you both, Jake. And then, P.S., my brother, Rob Foxcurran, also listens to the POC and is getting married in late July. Closer to his wedding, I may ask you if you can give him and his fiance a quick best wishes shout out. We all went to UW and our big Husky fans, Wolf. Uh, yeah, Rob and your fiance. Um, yeah. We'll give you a shout out then. We'll give you a shout out now. Yeah. Congrats on Congratulations the, the upcoming on the, nuptials. Yeah. Um. All right. This is uh, from Eric Mel Tucker. Hi, Ryan and Dave. As a Colorado fan, I can't really blame Mel Tucker for leaving Colorado when Michigan State is doubling his salary and the amount he has to hire assistants. Though it is a bad look for him to say that he's committed after the initial rumors and then leave two days later. My question for you guys is, where is Sparting getting all this money from? Tucker is getting at least $5.2 million after one 5-7 and seven season and a good recruiting class. This is like one of those funky NBA contracts you see when salary cap suddenly goes up and mediocre players get max money. I would expect this from programs like Texas, Georgia, or Ohio State, but Michigan State has always struck me as a second-tier Big Ten program. Is the Big Ten TV deal just that much more lucrative than ours? Or yes. Do they have some- yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is it. Or do they have some crazy rich donors I don't know about? Thanks. No. Yeah, it's strictly the TV money. It's all of that. Haven't we talked about this? Like the the distribution for the Pac-12, I think John Wilner went over. It's like $33 million, and the Big Ten is going to get like $55 million. That's per year, per school. So the Michigan States of the world are going to be getting $25 million more per year. Than Colorado. So in gets. theory, they could afford to pay their head coaches twenty million more dollars <laughs> than the Pac-12 coaches. And the good news per year. Yeah. And the good news is, it's going to get worse before it gets better because the Big Ten and the SEC are going to get new deals. The SEC, their their one game, their game of the week for CBS is like CBS is getting a steal of a deal. And they get like it's like thirty million dollars a year or something. It's going to go up to like three hundred million for one game. 
and ESPN's going to pay that. So all that SEC money, that's going to, you know, huge money just for the first game. Not the first tier, just one game. And the Big Ten gets to redo their deal. So they're going to get a lot more money. So before the Pac-12 can even try to do something in 2024, both the SEC and the, the Big Ten will get better deals and increase the gap than it is now. There's going to come a point, I think, where some entity involved in this is going to have to start proposing the idea of rev sharing between the conferences because they're going to need to prop up the West Coast in some way. Like, it's going to have to happen. Like charity you're talking about? Like- well, no, but, like, they already <laughs> rev share between the teams in the conference. Right. Like, obviously, they're all getting the same cut. Uh, but something between the conferences themselves because they're going to need the West Coast in some capacity. Yeah. Just as like a pool of teams to play. Imagine here's the issue, and and seeing Michigan State take Mel Tucker away is one thing, and now he's getting five and a half million dollars a year. He's up there, like in the top paid coaches in the country, in the top right. twenty or something, top fifteen. Purdue is up there. I mean, Jeff Brom because of the the Louisville ties. Louisville tries to hire him away. They throw a whole bunch of money at him, and now he's up there. He's in the five six million range. So you're like, imagine Colorado being in the top 15 as far as paying a head coach goes. Like, that's not happening. Imagine Oregon State being in, like, that's Purdue. Like, they're in the top there paying a head coach, which is absolutely insane. Like, that's they're doing things the Pac-12 could not do. Well, the good news is, or cannot do, I guess to an extent, is that Michigan State just did that for a 5-7 and seven coach. Just because people are spending a lot of money doesn't mean they're spending it well. Very true. Um, so, and we've been we were saying this even last year when we started talking about the revenue stuff. The Pac-12 needs to be; they just need to be better. They need to do a more efficient job. They need to do a better job. Of, and not the Pac-12 as an entity, but the individual schools need to be much, much more on their you know p's and q's. The whole thing yeah. on when they're doing coach hiring. They need to have a really good evaluation rubric. They need to factor and fit. They need to do all this stuff so that they're landing guys who are, have a better chance of succeeding than just throwing money at whatever, you know, five and seven coach looks promising. Yeah. Um, which is what Michigan State did. I don't think they did like a huge fit analysis. They were like, well, we're panicking. Mark D'Antonio's leaving. So let's figure something out. Yeah. Luke and Mel- Fickle said no. And yeah. Mel Tucker. Oh, he's a guy who's got a decent rep. Let's get him. Um, so I, I think it's they just need to be really good about it. It's not so that they can't get coaches, but it is going to be much more on the order of maybe one or two schools can actually outbid, um, you know, other teams because they've got individual private donations. But for the most part, they're going to need to hire assistants who yeah. have they've evaluated well and they know their reputation and they know they can get them and assess their fit for the West Coast. Are these guys who are going to want to stay? in Eugene? Are they going to want to stay in LA? Are they going to want to have that West Coast, you know, you know, lifestyle or whatever it is? And um, I think that becomes an important part of the evaluation now. I didn't even think about this, but Michigan State went after Luke Fickle and couldn't pry him away from Cincinnati. Well, but they Michigan pr- State isn't a good job. It's not. But they could pry standard. away Colorado's coach. Well, know? if you're Luke, Luke Fickle, well, that's the thing is, they're throwing throwing so much money at him because they have to pay a premium because it's Michigan State. They're again between the seventh and tenth best program in the Big Ten. <laughs> um, so that's not like they they really had to pay that kind of money. And Luke Fickle, 
as a prospect, as a coaching prospect, was a tier above what they could even land. Yeah. Um, because he is he's a guy a, yeah. with what he's doing at Cincinnati is going to be in line for the next big job yeah. opening. Like if Ohio State randomly came open, he'd be the guy. Um, if one of these SEC schools came open, he'd be one of the guys. Um, so Mel Tucker was the tier they had to go to to even get somebody to bite at their $5.2 million. Yeah, crazy. Uh, Pac-12 relevance. Uh, this is from Pete in Vancouver. Uh, gentlemen, with Leach going to Mississippi State and now Mel Tucker going to Michigan State, it seems as if the lack of exposure and revenue is starting to make an impact in the Pac-12. We've talked about this. Yeah. I don't think that is a stretch to think that these coaches stay in the Pac-12 if their schools could match the money and national exposure that their new, new schools can't provide. Now we have coaches uh, leaving along with many of the top recruits in the 2020 class who left the Pac-12 area. Is there anything Larry Scott can do to help reverse this trend or will the Pac-12 soon be relegated to being part of the group of six uh, conferences? Pete in Vancouver. Yeah, wh what can Larry Scott do? Man, that's a, we haven't really talked about that. I, I honestly, I don't know. I think that the, the ship has sailed on what Larry Scott can do. Um, I mean... They need a better TV deal, but there are some fundamental realities of of the Pac-12 that we've talked about that you need to contend with, which is the fandom isn't as rabid. There are just not going to be as many eyeballs. There's not going to be as lucrative a deal. It's just not going to happen. You have to get really creative. I think he did try to get creative, but in ways that didn't pan out. I mean, I, yeah. they've really tried to establish this, you know, partnership with China um, to try to build a new market for a lot of this. And I don't know what kind of revenue they've got from that, but I can't imagine it's been much. Um, they've, you know, had those basketball tours over there in the preseason. They've been trying to like expand basically the Are eyeballs. they planning to do that again? Cause they probably can't now because of the, well, I guess because it, of the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be August, September. So hopefully, you know, Oh yeah. So they didn't do it. Yeah. I guess they didn't do it this past year. Did they? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't think so. The last time they did was like the UCLA debacle. No, stuff. no. I think there was one after that. Oh, there was? Okay. I, I could be wrong. But um, in any case, uh, I think they've had they've tried to be creative with certain things, and it just hasn't really worked out a ton. Um, but there is like just a hard cap where the SEC is probably always going to have a more lucrative deal, except in those rare things where they have like a 10-year deal, and it's at the end of their deal, and Pac-12 renegotiates like the year before, which occasionally it lines up like that. Um, but for the most part, they're going to be behind in terms of that revenue. So I don't know from like a league office perspective, if they're ever going to be able to like get even with these other schools for a long period of time, should they be as far behind as they are right now? And can the PAC 12 maybe have done a better job of getting that uptick a little bit? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, the way the deal is now being 20 some odd million behind every single year per school, um, that didn't need to be there. Like no. doing some sort of ESPN deal where you give up your rights or whatever probably would have ended up with more money in the pockets of the schools. Yeah. Wait, I mean that, it, and just signing that long <clears throat> of a deal where all the other conferences get to renegotiate like two or three times during your deal. He did that for like the two or $3 billion that it was going to be because it was so many years. And he, you know, the PAC 12 was briefly ahead and then just has fallen so far behind. So it was just, it looked good then. And I think he wanted to make a splash, but it was the, the it was a, you know, he won a small battle and has just got crushed in the war. Yeah. Um, and, last one, I think. Yeah. 
So I seem like there's lots of words on that. Yeah. Okay. It's again from Peter in Vancouver. Oh, he wow. sent three, three questions this week. Wow. Thanks, Peter. Team right. talent. Uh, gentlemen, at this time of year when recruiting is one of the main topics in college football. Uh, wait. At this time of the year when recruiting is one of the main topics in college football. End of sentence. It's just end of sentence. That's, hmm. that's, not, a, that's not a complete sentence. <laughs> Over the years, there has been a debate about the importance of recruiting. 247 Sports now has their college team talent ranking. Uh, I looked through that ranking for all of the years they have listed, 2015 to 2019, to see if they would help point to who wins the Pac-12 each year. In 2015, the team with the most talent in the North, Stanford, played the team with the most talent in the South, USC. USC had more talent than Stanford, but lost that game. In 2016, the team with the third most talent in the North, UW, played the team with the least talent in the South, Colorado. UW won that game. In 2017, it was against Stanford versus USC. Each team, each the team with the most talent in their division. This time, the team with the most overall talent in the Pac-12 won USC. In 2018, talent-wise, UW had moved up to the number three team in the North, uh, number two team in the North, and they played the number four team in the South, Utah. UW won that game. Last year, the team with the most talent in the North, Oregon, played and beat Utah again with the fourth most talent in the South. Uh, in the five years of data, the team in the championship game that had the most talent won four times. However, half the time, the team with the most talent in each division didn't win their division. This seems counterintuitive to me. I would expect that the talent advantage that a team has would manifest better over more games and that there would be more unpredictability in predicting the winner based on talent with just a single game. What are your thoughts about why the teams with the most talent aren't, aren't winning their division, especially in the South, Peter, and Vancouver? Because that team is always USC, <laughs> and USC has been coached by Clay Helton. Yeah, that's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, that's I it. Mean, this would all be coaching. Like The reason it's Utah is because they have a very good coach. Yeah. The reason it's not USC is because they have a very bad coach. That's it. <laughs> it's really that simple. Why do, everyone seems to want to explain things through talent. Like They want to say, and they want to like denigrate the rankings when it's obvious. Right. Obvious that they've got a, a, like, a substandard head coach. Somebody who's like below replacement level head coach. That's why they're. That's why they suck. Yeah, there's a reason why like Bedeku went to like Illinois, Illinois or whatever. Yeah, and is now like he was leading the nation in sacks. Yeah, for a while, just yeah. an absolute. Stud. He was a five star. Couldn't he, get on the goddamn <laughs> field at USC for some reason, <laughs> and goes to Illinois and just is like gets like twenty five sacks this year. Yeah, that's it's it's really that simple. And it's you know if you were Kyle, you know Kyle Whittingham. Now, would he want to like switching rosters with USC? He could do a lot more with it. Now, he recruits certain kind of guys, and he creates a culture there. Um, and he might, you know, some of the guys on USC's roster he might not want because of that. But if you gave him the same level of talent, it would be a different story. So yeah, it's it's completely coaching, like Dave said. Uh, that would be my opinion on it. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, how long was this show? Oh, two hours. <laughs> nice. We get in the same room and we just talk. We just talk and talk and talk. Because Brandon was very succinct. Like he didn't go on very no, long. No, no. So it was Brandon, mostly us. Brandon was really tight. Yeah. <laughs> it was like you're a stand up comedian. Give me a type five, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um do you ever do you ever think about doing stand up comedy or do you ever no, do any? No. No. I had um actually until I started podcasting, I had horrific stage fright. Really? This actually helped a lot. Um, but it did? I couldn't, well, no, I, I learned it cause I had to give a couple of speeches at weddings and I was suddenly like much more comfortable and better at it. And I'm like, okay. what, what changed? Cause I used to have like just intense fear of standing in front of people and having to present. That's weird. I wouldn't and think I th you would. Yeah. No, you wouldn't think it about me. 
Um, and it was only in that specific scenario. It was specifically related to having to stand in front of people and talk. Yeah. Because I don't, I never had a problem like, you know, talking in front of people, but just having to stand up and talk. Yeah. Not good. Oh. But this, I don't know. Having people like have to listen to my voice every week, it's been beneficial, I think. That's good. Yeah. I, I, I did a couple of things in school. Like they asked me to speak in front of the class once and I was like, wow, okay. And I read something and I was like, I, I don't know. I felt pretty good about it. But once, when I was an engineer, which is weird, like you wouldn't think, because there's not a lot of good people skills in engineering if you know that world. But I was on like the, I was an application engineer. So we were kind of on the sales team where we had to, we had to know the products and stuff and we had, had to help people like support them. But we also had to give like presentations of like demonstrations of what, mm -hmm. here's why you should buy our right. $150,000 piece of software or whatever it is. And so you had to get up in front of people. And then we actually, because a lot of people weren't very good at it, you would take these different classes and they were interesting when they would film you. And I just remember things like if you're talking and you feel like you can't see me right now, but you're like, you're, you're moving your arms like a little bit, you feel like you're making these huge gestures and then you watch, you're like, I'm not doing anything. And like, do this, like do make these huge hands gestures and it doesn't look weird, you know, and, and where you would look and how you talk. And I, I think that helped. I mean, I felt pretty comfortable, but that helped me too. They're like the little things you would pick up and some of the words, the bridge words, like, so and but and um and all that stuff you get that a lot like whatever and uh whatever yeah. and uh like yeah you're just saying those things like oh okay you you're uh listening to yourself and i'm still saying them but the, you, it just comes out there and you, you try to eliminate some of that but it's just it's conversational it's just hard to get rid of it it's important to have actually bridge words are important you oh. need them um so it, it's found you're a big that, um guy i think well if you're listening to somebody talk and you don't have the bridge words you they sound like a robot to the human ear like it doesn't sound right and there are a few people for whom it's like a big problem to like listen and hear the bridge words those people are psychotic um <laughs> it, it's completely weird because you also need to use the ums you need to use those not just in like a way where it sounds conversational but also to hold space like if if you don't quite have that word planned out but you're having a conversation with somebody and you need to continue your thought um or uh or but or so is an important part of developing that next thought oh. um every single language on earth has different versions of this it's a completely natural important part of human discourse and it's psychotic grammarians who <laughs> like prepositions at the end of sentences, which is a complete thing of Latin grammar that has absolutely no relevance to English whatsoever. Uh, they've decided all these rules for things because of their personal preferences that have nothing to do with how humans actually communicate. Interesting. Yeah, I, it was, I was funny when I played. I played a few rounds of golf over in Hawaii, and when I was in Maui, I played. I got paired up with this uh, doctor from Fresno. Uh, shout out to Kevin. He was a nice guy. But he had, I, there would be some kind of, I forget what the exact word was, but he used like these bridge words and it was so like, and then, or, and, uh, or so I forget what it was, but he would, it would be like, he would say, and, uh, and, uh, and then he would talk, you know, and we just, I hit this shot and, uh, and, uh, and it was, it, it was to the point where you were really noticing it, mm -hmm. not like part of conversation. So I don't know what that is, but it was like an overuse. Well, of that, it. that can be somebody who is also, um, if, if you're one of those people who won't, uh, give up, you know, won't give up the, the speaking conch and you just continue to use oh. bridge words because you want to continue talking because you don't actually want to listen to anybody No, this was else. like in the middle of a sentence. Like it wasn't, he wasn't about to hand it off. He wasn't trying to keep the conversation. It was, 
any sort of pause in thought before he went to the next one. It was it was over. You know, it wasn't just like 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 it was. And I forget, I forget, man, I forget exactly what it was, but it, you noticed it. And he's a, you know, he's a doctor and you would have to communicate with patients and stuff all the time. And well, I mean, doctors are like engineers, not necessarily, not a, not a, not a social people. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's all, and it's interesting. Like if you've ever had to speak to somebody who doesn't use any and they've been, it's somebody who's probably obviously been taught not to. And, but they've also been taught, like, I need to think before I speak. And they have these unnatural pauses where you look at their face and you can see them like thinking or, or and it's just this several seconds of silence. That's the most awkward period right. of your entire life is waiting for somebody to talk who is not using a bridge word. Yeah, it is just. And in what, I, I, and what I, we do is he here, having a seizure, I have no idea what's happening here. And what we do here, like if you do a radio interview. You cannot do that. Like, if you pause, they're talking. Like, they're yeah, like you, talking you have to hold space. You have to keep talking whatever well, words and when, I think in person, we're probably doing a better job of it because we can kind of cue each other visually. But when we're doing it via Skype, you have no idea. No, I, I mean, don't half know the we... time when we're talking, we drop out or something. And so we're talking <laughs> over each other anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of real value to it, a lot of essential value to it. People who denigrate it are um, people who who have personal preferences and um, have an overactive year. Yeah. That's interesting, but that that's all cool stuff. And I, I didn't know that about you, but I'm kind of a ham. So I like getting in front. Like I love like doing the, I've been the best man three times. I love giving the speech. I love it. I've done it stuff. twice. And the first time I felt like absolute intense trepidation. Wow. Like I was so nervous going into it. It was so bad, but, you, but you like, you like to hold people's attention. You like to, you know, it's a real specific thing to yeah. standing in front of people I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, then we just added like seven minutes onto the end there of the two-hour show. Uh, well, Dave, great to see you in uh, in the flesh. In the flesh. It was awesome. And Brandon Huffman, thanks for uh, joining us. And thanks to all of you listening out there. If you're still listening, we do appreciate you listening. And uh, glad we got through all your questions. Keep sending them in. We'll, do, we'll make sure we do the shows weekly and stuff now. But... That's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham for Brandon Huffman. Thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast of Champions, and we will talk to you next time. You deserve the truth. The enemy is at our gates. The fight for humanity. I look at your faces. I do not see defeat. No! And I do not see surrender. It's far from over. You will not make that stand alone. We have something the enemy does not. We have heroes. Halo. New season now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus.